Hello everyone, welcome back for another episode of Magnum Reads. This is Spencer here, and I'm here, of course, with BJ. BJ, how's it going? Good, how are you, Spencer? Uh, doing fine, doing fine. Once again, we are back to Brandon Sanderson with an interesting short story, which uh, we're mostly using to buy time for uh, me to finish off We Are Legion, We Are Bob, which, given that it's a full-length novel, I need a bit of time to do. Which but is I must... a, a dirty, dirty lie, as, as I recently found out, much to my amusement. It's more that you've been putting off, well, maybe not putting off is the right word, maybe uh, have a very busy lawyer schedule, and your free time is not that large. I'm going to draw a distinction here. As I admitted to BJ before we started, I have already finished We Are Legion, We Are Bob. I finished it in like a day and a half. However... I do like to go back and take notes before we actually talk about a book. Short story, I can just wing. I just read this thing oh, about 30 minutes before we started recording. Book, I want to have at least some frame of reference to remember what the hell I read 400 pages before before we started talking. Yeah, I try and do the same thing and, you know, take some notes and, and post them online so we can sort of both work off of my maker notes and Spencer adds his uh, infinite wisdom in his own private uh notes i assume they're on a legal pad do, do you sign and date each page as well you know just to make sure that you know it's it's appropriately entered into the spencer note-taking record I, I i must say i've got a notary pad right here so i can just endorse each page to have it submitted into the official record immediately after we're done alternatively and i'm not saying this is actually the case but it's possible my handwriting may have degraded to a point that even i find it hard to read when i'm writing fast it's i i, I type everything now <laughs> I have a Word document open with all my notes typed on it for various things. Gotcha. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've tried to essentially do the same thing with a, a document on Google Docs, and it's actually been kind of funny because editing those on a cell phone is a little bit difficult. <laughs> why? Why would you even make, why would you add that much hassle to the experience? Well, because as you uh, have somewhat discovered that the audiobook for We Are Legion, We Are Bob is presumably quite good and in my experience quite good and so I'll just have it with me and I'll be doing stuff at work or something like that so I just you know pop my phone out that I'm listening to the audiobook on and, and take some quick notes. It, BJ had recommended previously in our last podcast that the audiobook of We Are Legion We Are Bob was just in a, in, a wor- in a realm of its own compared to most audiobooks that we see on Amazon and I kind of ignored him and just read the physical copy and then went back to check the audiobook reviews and saw that it was like best of show on Amazon two years running. So I'm going to go try to listen to that before we even talk about it, just to see two different mediums of the same experience. But we are, we are off script and talking about what we're going to be talking about in probably two weeks' time. Our stopgap measure here deserves better than being called a stopgap. It actually was, pretty, was really pretty good. Uh, this is a, another Brandon Sanderson work entitled Snapshot, and honestly, I was kind of caught off guard. I was expecting just a pretty quick read, but this measured up to Legion, if not in some ways surpassed it in my mind. Yeah, I, I think it's a, another good entry into uh, Brandon Sanderson's repertoire of genres that he likes to play around in. Um, we've talked about, um, if not read separately, Mistborn, which I think is a very good entry into a fantasy world um and essentially actually two aspects of a fantasy world one that's a little bit more classical fantasy and one that's a little bit more uh steampunky wild west and then 
Um, we definitely talked one, about one that was a little bit more of a superhero universe um, called the Reckoners Trilogy, um, which maybe we'll read at some point. And then he has sort of a more modern sci-fi aspect, like, honestly, a little bit more just straight-up drama with uh, the Legion short stories. It's interesting, this being only the second Brandon Sanderson I've read, I guess I have a bit of, bit of a limited perspective, but just from now reading Legion and reading this, I'm picking up that Brandon Sanderson may be quite fond of uh, mysteries, maybe uh, of, um, since both of these stories are very much focused on the idea of characters investigating with somewhat fantastical elements associated in an otherwise very real world. Uh, so I'd say there's only one other book that really has this aspect to it, and he actually mentions it in the afterword to this book, which is Warbreaker. Um, I actually listened to that fairly recently, and it was, an, you know, another really good entry. Um, I actually, like a lot of those other works, a little bit more than the Oathbringer series that everybody seems to be fawning over, um, <laughs> but... Not that I'm saying that it's not a good book, uh, that is not my intention whatsoever at all. I like it as a book, but in terms of pleasant reading and an easily digestible story and things like that, I think his other works fit more into that realm. Um, I actually, I don't know how uh, our friend Lee would feel about it, but I feel like his Oathbringer series is a little bit more along the lines of Game of Thrones in terms of multiple characters' perspectives, a lot of political intrigue, some interesting things going on in the world that you don't quite understand that are a little bit more slowly revealed, um, and just a host of characters that I wouldn't say is quite unending, but is large. Well, I think, unfortunately, BJ, the internet already has their, uh, their brief little snapshot picture of your views on Brandon Sanderson's work, and from their perspective, you condemned Oakbreaker in a way that's utterly unforgivable. But we'll run it by Lee and see if, you, see if we can actually get him to read a book beyond Game of Thrones in the future. As for this particular short story, uh, I guess we should probably do a plot summary first, which I suppose one of the best places to start is what the hell the snapshot technology is. Is there any way to describe it simply for our reader base here? Um, no, I'm not sure. And, and I think we're going to mash up against one of our other common topics, which is world building, um, <laughs> as we're trying to figure out how to talk about the plot. Um, so we're going to have to fill in a few blanks as we go, based on reasonable interpretation. Exactly. Um, I think the best way to term a snapshot is... Somehow, this piece of technology came about where a large portion of a city can be uh, recreated. So a day in the past um, and of a certain choosing and within a certain uh, period in the past, so maybe like a week or two weeks past, you can put in some piece of information of uh, what and where you want to go, and a large chunk of a city is recreated to pretty much every last detail for as long as they want to run this simulation. And basically the day plays out exactly how you would expect, probably a little bit like Groundhog Day, um, where as the people that then go into the snapshot who are detectives 
make slight perturbations in what is a fairly uh, real recreation of a day that has elapsed, uh, make what they call deviations, so slight changes or uh, modifications to what actually happened that day, and something slightly different plays out. But in general, the main themes or the main activities continue as normal. It, it's an interesting comparison you made to Groundhog Day. I was going to jump on you for a second that I thought one of the themes of Groundhog Day was the ultimate, uh, in some ways, rigidness of the universe as to the world itself, that whatever he did, inevitably it would play out the same, and that whatever deviations he created were inherently ephemeral and in some ways bound by natural laws. But ultimately, the point of Groundhog Day is that, that he, despite all that, can improve himself as a person, which I'd say actually may be an overarching theme in this one, especially as it comes to a conclusion at the end as well. So that's an, that's an interesting point to come back to. Uh, the snapshot itself is, it's an interesting mix of both technology and fantasy, of where they continually debate over the course of the novel what energy is required to produce this, um, what investment was required to make it possible. They suggest they, the details are purposely kept ambiguous. It's not the point of the story, but they're fun to ponder about, of where they suggest sometimes that it may have in some way been a government project, or at least something the government had participated in, or maybe even just found. But then a private city, a city-state, they say, by the name of Clipperton, home to something like 20 million people or whatever else, purchased it. And I, I think in some ways they imply that the snapshot technology is in some way isolated to them, that the, only maybe the city of Clipperton itself can be recreated, but I'm not sure if they were ever very clear on that point. Yeah, I don't think it was that clear, and I think this sort of falls into the, you know, we're sort of tossed into a world that... I'm sure there are notebooks full or, you know, probably Word documents, honestly, since you know, this is the uh, modern era. 20, well, vaguely modern era. Um, and so there are, you know, tons and tons of notes about what lies behind this world. And clearly it's not our world, but um, it's very clearly a sort of logical conclusion to somewhere in our near future that some things have happened. So, you know, we right. don't have uh, Chicago, we don't have New York, we don't have something like that. So clearly something's happened to change that. And there are some vague references to uh, maybe some political upheaval or something along those lines um, that it's actually common to some of other uh, Brendan Sanderson's works. Um, yeah. Probably could very well be Salt Lake City, given his uh, home Personal location. To it. Yes. Uh, it, as you said, there's, it's definitely somewhere in the future and a definitely an interesting future where it talks about, I think, like the restored states. It describes several essentially independent city-states occupying what was once uh, the nations of Mexico, the United States, and Canada. It talks about essentially former American money. It talks about these city-states as if they were, as if, well, they are independent nations in their own right, interacting with each other to a vague degree and all in some ways interested in competing for this particular snapshot technology while also being incredibly uncomfortable with it. One yeah. thing the book explores, which is a fun thing to talk about, is that everyone in the world is aware of this technology because they're using it in various ways. And their immediate response is to find every way reasonably possible to limit how it can be used. Yeah, I mean, it, it's clearly he thought about the implications to privacy and the implications to spying on people. And so the limited use that people seem to be okay with 
is for at least some amount of detective work and solving cases uh, like murders and robberies and things like that, where the detectives can basically go to the crime scene or uh, follow witnesses or prime suspects and, and the like and try and basically assess what actually happened and give the real detectives in the real world some clues as to who they should talk to, where they should look, and what they should do. And it's in, now one point, uh, I'll come back to this in one second, there's one point I want to address about the uh, snapshot where it comes from. And what is oddly one of the most uh, fantastical elements of the story is this thing or entity that apparently is in some way powering the snapshot. Did you pick up on the, uh, there's like five or six references to this being or thing or object that seems in some ways to be dreaming up this world that they then operate in. It's seemingly described as being distinctly not mechanical, very much biological, but they take pains to be, the characters take pains to be un, to not give much in the way of detail about it and seem to be clearly uncomfortable to even discuss it. I almost wonder if it's in some ways like an in reference to some of his other stories, but you know better than that, better about that than I would. Uh, I don't think it's a reference to any of his other works that I've read, and I've read a good handful of them, um, but it could be some reference to, you know, the Cosmere in general or something like that, but I actually don't think that this work takes place in the greater universe of his work. Um, there is a series that, uh, have you read Otherland by Todd Williams? heard of it never read it no uh okay well there are similarities to that series that come to mind but if you ever want to read it i shouldn't tell you what the similarities are <laughs> fine we'll talk about it off camera at some other point yeah, um spoilers it, a little bit I mean, if anything, it almost reminded me of something I, I like the Cthulhu mythos of where you know the the distant omnipotent otherworldly dreamer that uh Everyone is just stumbling through its dreams as part of their reality. But it is merely background, but it's background that, again, just frames that this is a very much a universe which, given the limits of the fr- uh, limits of the, of the, uh, the medium in terms of a novella, is purposely not fully explained, but offers little fascinating tidbits as to how it might work and how we could explore where that goes. But as you said, as getting back to our main point, in terms of the limitations that they impose on people interacting with this snapshot, this moment taken in time of the past in a particular in a particular area, they only allow individual detectives in to investigate very specific crimes, with clear restrictions being placed on them. Restrictions that appear to be mostly just window dressing for the public than as than what actually plays out in reality. Whereas they're told to, after each crime, retreat to their safe house, no one really cares if they do. They're told to have their cell phones on to monitor and keep data as to each activity that they do so that they can trace and clearly map so that there aren't that many deviations and everything occurs and not much violation of privacy happens. But the cops can apparently can delete their own cell phone logs the same way a cop can delete his uh, little recording device on his vest. So, Body cam? Thank you. What's the word I was trying to, st- trying to struggle for? Yeah. Are, so, so are you suggesting that uh, police have access to their body cams and that brings into question some of the possible privacy issues or something like that? I think that's a very intentional reference that the author is making, yes. Okay. Um, it, it, it's also, it's, it is interesting, though, what they do trust in terms of 
it's made very clear that they don't want drones going through this world, too much of a privacy concern. They don't want uh, full teams combing through for every small crime. They want two, seemingly just two cops investigating specific identified particular crimes, high value, high value moments that... Is it almost implied that they're the moments that people are willing to pay to have investigated to a greater degree? Or maybe even just cold cases, you know, cases that some other detectives have tried for a little while, but have basically run up against the wall and, you know, need some bit of information to continue prosecuting the crime. And, you know, I, so, I sort of suspect as, as a lawyer, you have uh, some ulterior or alternate perspective of uh, wanting other possible evidence or, or something along those lines for, for different court cases? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say they were cold case, because like for the example of the murder of the mayor's son, one of the first crimes they end up investigating, it seemingly only happens about 10 days beforehand, because we find out at the end that they, uh, the information that they have is only uh, is concerning an event that's going to happen the next day in the real world. So it doesn't seem to be crimes that are that far back in the past, but in reference to the lawyerly perspective, I think it's a fun commentary on how the public really overvalue the idea of witness testimony, of where they don't want drones because they're uncomfortable with that, but they're really comfortable with the idea of two cops going into this world and just taking notes and everybody trusting what they have off afterwards. Well, everything well we... you say that, but it's like, yeah, you can look for the murder weapon in this drain, or, yeah. you know, this is where, you know, this piece of evidence is in the real world. So I know... Or I feel like there's a... Um... There's a bit of a hearsay issue going on to a certain degree. There's also a chain of custody problem. Um, but apparently they've overcome those issues in this particular world. Why do you say there's a chain of custody problem? The knowledge about where the information is coming from is itself a bit of evidence. In terms of where they're acquiring that from, they're acquiring it from a universe... From a wit They're acquiring that knowledge from events that didn't happen in a universe that doesn't exist from witnesses that can't act actually offer their own accurate testimony in our real world. There's, a, there's okay. at least a bit of a hearsay authenticity issue with respect to any aspect of their testimony. Okay, uh, fair, fair enough. Um, I also thought you were going to reference um oh geez what's his name uh the fictional lawyer who basically always you know upends eyewitness testimony uh pick one that's basically every single modern uh lawyer cop drama that exists is that you're going to break them on the stand and they're going to confess to what happens which you know spoiler alert Never happens ever. No, no, no. There's there's one famous one that that basically upends eyewitness testimony like all the time, and then does the uh, courtroom accusation of you know the other random person that he's figured out who it is. Uh, hold on a second. Yeah. Uh, Matlock. Uh, I don't think it's Matlock. Matlock uh, could be an option. Columbo's not an attorney, but he likes to do that with witnesses. Um. It said it's a pretty common trope in terms of courtroom dramas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, one of the points I was just going to draw is that it, I, I like that he's having it being the public trust witness testimony because that's so true in the real world. We trust witness testimony over genetic information, over actual forensics, that witnesses have commonly sent people to 
prison or the death row in spite of clear forensic evidence demonstrating that they couldn't have committed the crime because people are just that willing to trust what somebody saw with their own two eyes. Yeah. When, as the uh, Innocence Project has proven time and again, witness testimony is based on memory, and human memory is getting about 30% of what actually happened and just filling in the rest of the blanks. It's like trying to recreate the dinosaur from Jurassic Park. We're just kind of filling in the rest of the details with frog. So there's some reason. I finally picked it up who it is. Mm. Um, Perry Mason. Thank you. That is very good call. He's the classic example of that trope. Right. But, but, but he's the classic example of not trusting eyewitnesses because they're inherently flawed. Oh, he trusts, he trusts his own eyewitness. Well, he, trusts, he, he trusts the victim yes, he's defending. Yes. Yeah, that, that's true. But other he eyewitnesses. He has, the adva- he has the advantage of a television show character of being absolutely 100% able to trust his own client, which so, you, yeah, yeah, I, I, I wish I could operate in that world. You do realize that, you know, he it's a book series, not just yes. a TV show. I know, but I know the TV show and the movies better than the book series. I've read those. Okay. And I just wanted to make sure. And I believe I have a full set of uh, Perry Masons if you ever want to borrow them or something. Did you get that from your dad? Yep. Now, as said, our two, we have two main detectives that are exploring this world. Uh, Anthony Davis and I think the guy's name was Chaz. I didn't catch it. No, I, I think it's Ch- like his last name is Chavez, but and uh, his, his nickname is Chaz. Gotcha. I was trying to remember what they ever actually said his full name, but I only ever remember him being called Chaz. Because we're mostly seeing this from the perspective of Davis. Yes. Who are two detectives in the city of Cl- the city state of Clipperton, I think it's called, that are being tasked with investigating particular crimes in this snapshot universe of Clipperton. Seemingly, at least in the case of our story, happening about mm, 10 days, two weeks before present events. Um, they are the classic odd couple of detectives that are so common in these crime dramas of where Davis One is... really likes struck- mustard on everything that he eats and the other That's- doesn't. That, that is Chaz that apparently will put mustard on Chinese food, which is, I'm okay, I'm willing to do spicy mustard on that, and burritos, which is, sounds just criminal in my mind. I feel like, you know, certain burritos could use a little pep. It sort of depends on the mustard, but uh, maybe more of like a Chinese mustard than a, a classic Heinz bright yellow, or French's bright yellow, sorry. I, I, I feel if you're, have to use, you're having to use mustard to make the burrito tolerable, it's just a bad burrito. The mustard can only do so much. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a crutch. I'm, I'm willing to, to go with that. Okay, we've, we've, we've focused on one detail that separates them, mustard. Other details. <laughs> uh, Davis appears to be a much more of a veteran of the force. I think it talks about that uh, he, unlike, should we just call him Chaz? Yes. Uh, served as a detective in the actual real-life police force for many years before he was placed on snapshot duty. He comes across as being relatively quiet, relatively introspective, bookish, and still in a bit of trauma recovering from a relatively recent uh, divorce, I think happening about six months before the start of the events of this book. And a couple of other things. He's a bit more timid, is also, uh, or he's much more timid. Much more so. He's both physically and emotionally described as being smaller in some ways than, Ch- than uh, Chaz, though he's noticeably shorter. He talks about several times that, he, that he's distinctly, uh, distinctly a smaller person. He's not- notably timid. And one of the events that drove him into this uh, snapshot duty 
was his unwillingness to use deadly force when called for it in the line of duty, and the resulting loss of an officer because of it. On the other hand, uh, how would you describe Chaz in a few words? Uh, oof. Ch- Chaz is a, a little bit of a loose cannon, shall we say. Um, uh-huh. He seems to take his job relatively seriously, but where Davis seems to have more of the opinion that snapshots are as close to real life as you get, Davis seems a little bit more willing to sort of do whatever he wants in a snapshot. Um, He seems to be a little bit more of the harm that you cause in a snapshot isn't real because it's not part of the real world. And so you can go a little bit farther and do things a little bit less, you know, by the book or by social convention than you would in the real world. Yeah, I think in one of his assessments that they eventually look at in the police computer, uh, one of his superiors describes him as acting as if he was in a video game. So let's stick him in the snapshot so he can do less damage. Um, Where It's notable in terms of how they even interact with people in the snapshot, where, as you said, Davis seems to just naturally view them as being real people. Because it's one thing to make very clear about this. This isn't just like um, a holodeck recreation. This is ac- this is in very many ways very much a snapshot. It's as if they're time traveling, except it's into an alternate universe. That these are very much suggested to be living, breathing people created by created by energy, created and conjured for this particular moment. But they're self-aware. They can realize this isn't real, and they can suffer the psychological shock from it. And one of the earliest moments that we see about how differently the two of them go about uh, operating in this universe is how distinctly different their views are on using an object that they have to show to the people in the snapshot that they aren't real. This, uh, what is it? Reality it's badge. some kind of badge they describe it as. Excuse me. Uh, reality badge. So basically they have some sort of badge that identifies them as detectives in a snapshot. And identifies... The individual in question as not being real. Now, notably, or they don't the other know way what this. It identifies as the holder is the only real. Right, and it identifies the people in the snapshot as being recreations. Right. Um, they notably can't see the badge as anything other than the silver badge. They don't know what it looks like to the people in this universe, but to the people in this universe, whatever they see it as or whatever it represents to them. It can be shattering in all ways you can imagine in finding out that you're nothing more than a simulation, nothing more than a very brief simulacrum that will evaporate when this universe is turned off in less than a few days' time. Yeah. Um, I actually thought it was funny that you brought up the hologram because in so many episodes where they needed to have probably some filler or something like that, where the the holodeck, there we go. Um, doesn't function exactly like it should, which is like more than half of the episodes. Somebody thinks they're real. Something gets, you know, a little bit too, a little bit too real in, in one way or another. And so I would say it's a little bit more like the holodeck in the episodes that we see, not in the presumed function of the holodeck. 99, you know, presumably 99% of the time, it's just, that's not the right. interesting part that you get to see in TV shows. Um, but yeah, 
we're seeing the holodeck on the day the Star Trek crew interacts with Moriarty, if you remember that Next Generation episode, rather than every other day of the year that they just, you know, have fun with the brief little bits of light that are being conjured in front of them. Yes. Um, no no Rikering in this episode, though, for, for the most part. Um, <laughs> but for the mo- for, but what we see throughout the, the story is that this is very real in terms of um, any violence or anything like that. You know, if, if somebody dies, they actually die. Um, you know, real person going in will actually die if something happens, like they get into a car crash or, you know, they get shot or whatever. And the harm that they inflict is almost incomprehensibly similar to the real thing, other than at some point it will go away. It's very important to know this isn't a, it, it's almost incre- it's not a recreation. It is truly a snapshot. This is the events as they happened. Now influenced by the various little derivations that they will cause from them being in the world in a way they weren't previously. But when they shoot somebody, they die just as they would in the real world. If somebody gets hit by a car, they get run over. Yeah. There's nothing fake about this. It is a world. They it's do just make the one butterfly that a, joke though. Yes, they do make the butterfly joke, too. And it proves true. If they talk about, for one prior case, that uh, them uh, unlocking a door allowed a woman to get to her interview on time, and as a result, the universe just cascaded in a complete different uh, direction. Yep. They have to constantly be careful, as part of their investigation, that they don't over-change events or over-influence things in a way they didn't occur, because then, realistically, for a courtroom it'd be harder to represent the evidence as a uh, being authentic to our world when it's been so influenced by your own actions. Right. And somehow they have some, they call them bean counters, but some assessment of the amount or number of deviations that occur as a consequence of their actions. And so um, there is some maybe vaguely pseudoscientific uh, assessment of how different that day was from the actual day in question. Um, But it's made very clear that the detectives have no idea what actions will cause more or less of a deviation. And they bring up some of these examples as huge deviations of very minor things that they did. And then there are some examples of major things that they seemingly did that had almost no effect on, you know, the, outcome of the day yeah it's either it's either being pushed to almost to the point of parody in terms of what major events can happen that apparently don't influence the fabric of the universe that much or they're suggesting in some ways that the bean counters don't operate in real time because at one point in the course of the story they go into a police station and just straight shooting people they shoot their immediate boss and eventually convince the chief of police without much effort to go shoot himself in the head Seemingly as part of his, uh, the last, I think they even said that was about the sixth time that he's done it upon them showing him the badge is just the normal course of events. Yeah. Um, but I've, so, so I, I feel like, again, we, we keep straying away from the things we, that we say we're we'll, going to do. We'll focus uh, on plot. We'll focus on plot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Love basically it. these two detectives are sent into the snapshot, which hopefully you have at least some, uh, Either you've read it already or we've described it well enough that you have a good concept of what a snapshot is. So they're sent in to investigate two different crimes. And one of them is the main priority, 
And then if they can, if they, you know, are in the right area, there's a second crime later in the day for, for them to um, investigate. Which, which is interesting. I guess it probably suggests just the amount of investment that's required to get this project off the ground. Is you would think that if they could just turn this on and off pretty easily, they'd remove them after each crime and after each incident, just so they run less of a risk of influencing the world. But they're willing to keep these guys in there for hours, and I think they even suggested at some point days before they pull them out, which I guess just says how much energy is required to make this universe exist, and they want to get as much out of it as possible before they have to reset it. Right. Or that, you know, there's a sort of minimum amount of time for it to run appropriately or whatever else. Sure. Um, and they've found that like a normal working day seems to be about, about the right amount of time for them to do whatever it is that they do on a normal basis. Right. Well, the first crime that they're investigating seems to be a relatively run-of-the-mill murder, as we're solely putting together details, of where they know that a mayor's son was shot on a particular street at a particular time, and all they really need to do is be in a position to observe it, so as to either, I think they basically suggest, confront the witness and get key damning testimony out of where various bits of evidence could be stored, or just simply observe them to see whether they dispose of things or go things or leave clues that they then can inform detectives by text in the real world so that they can then get them and use those as evidence with presumably their own witness testimony to back it up later. And so in the course of observing this crime, they uh, go into a, um, they order burritos, debate over the merits of mustard, go into a little 7-Eleven, uh, confront the proprietor with uh, knowledge that he isn't real, um, and then kind of stake out to watch where they know for a fact the crime occurred based on the evidence that they've received from the, poli from the police station in the real world. And then essentially once it does, they see the crime occur, they follow the perpetrator um, and essentially, you know, through some twists and turns that is inherent in sort of every cop drama, I would say, uh, follow him this way and that and eventually find that he stashed the gun in a certain place and then they text out to their handler, Maria, um, to go look for the murder weapon in a specific place and then presumably the quote-unquote real detectives in the real world will go find uh the murder weapon right which they end up doing and end up solving the crime pretty simply and then they're left essentially to their own devices for what's suggested to be essentially a whole day until they can be in place to observe a domestic incident as to who hit first at a particular time halfway across town during this period, they're encouraged to go off to a safe house, presumably so that they don't unnecessarily cause, de cause derivations in these, uh, simu the simulated snapshot world. And the other thing that's brought up is so they don't meet themselves, which I appreciate <laughs> as an incredibly common trope of you don't want to, you know, if you go back into the past, you don't want to meet yourself because, you know, some weird thing's going to happen. Um, they kind of make it sound like the detectives might have run into themselves at some point and already yeah. have gotten past that, but this didn't actually make it into uh, this story. It was just sort of acknowledged in passing. As you said, it's a very common trope, one that they talked about the various options for what might happen, like, say, Back to the Future, or the universe might split asunder, you might instantaneously just fall into a bit of a coma fit. But as you suggest, 
it seems like a lot of these rules were put in place just to please the public and sit and explain that this is an ordered, measured, controlled use of this universe in ways that are clearly responsible, just so people will stop asking questions. Whereas in terms of the actual operating universe, they've just pretty commonly and flippantly broken every rule in the book and are having fun doing it. Well, at least one of them is. <laughs> it, I mean, it seems like uh, Davis is the much more ordered and measured about it, but I wouldn't say in every single way. He's seemingly gone along with them watching the uh, chief of police shoot himself in the head about six times now. Uh, he has seemingly observed his own records several times in the past in terms of going into the police station. He's willing to make use of his situation in various ways that are outside proper operating channels, just nowhere to the same degree that Chaz is. Yes. I mean, one, one example of this is in his coin collecting habit, of where it's... Since this is very much real, what they do here, what they take into themselves, in some ways persists. They can die in this universe. If they eat something, that food remains in them when they leave. If it didn't, that would be fascinating to see the energy actually evaporate out of their stomachs when they go. Also, they can collect coins. Well, seemingly one of Dave. Possibly. It's, it's Possibly unclear. they can collect so, coins. So I don't think he's done it in the past. Um, so he, basically, he finds uh, nickel, I think it is, that he didn't have in his collection. So uh, Davis has a, a young son and how, that he uh, doesn't see super often, given his uh, preceding divorce. And uh -huh. one of the things that they have in common is collecting coins. And they're working on uh, basically building up a collection. And so he has a list on a phone of coins that he has and the ones that he needs. And whenever he can, he gets coin change as um, to go through and, and find any coins that he doesn't have. And it sort of seems like otherwise, for the most part, it's credit cards or something along those lines. Very much how sort of life is now, where the commonality of people paying with cash is slowly declining. Yeah, to the point of where I think they say at one point that coins themselves stopped being made about two years before. So... It truly is a collector's paradise in terms of what coins they can find are truly not going to be recreated anymore in the future. Yeah. Um, and, he, and, and so what we, I would say mm -hmm. is he makes it fairly clear that he's not tried to sneak out or, or get out any coins um, to fill his collection, but for the most part seems to like have places to look for some coins Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, maybe this bodega has, you know, when he paid for uh, right. hot dog or whatever, gave him some coins. And so, you know, he'll do something similar in the real world and try and get one of the coins that from his uh, collection. Right. And I think I think it was his boss, Maria, has a particularly valuable nickel that's sitting that she now knows is sitting on her desk. So he can now go to her and ask to trade for it because he knows where it's there. He does think, though, that if he swallows it and it's in his system when he leaves this particular snapshot, it will persist, and that he will be able to get it out of his stool later. His one effort at trying this, however, reveals that it is actually rather hard to swallow a coin that's not exactly as flexible as one needs to get down your throat. Yeah. Um, um, I, I guess, like, it's not something that I've tried, but I feel like it's not, <laughs> it shouldn't be quite as difficult as, as they seem to uh, purport it to be. He's a small person. Maybe maybe he just couldn't get past his particular throat. Um, 
Oh, so so one of the things, one of the very minor details that we sort of glossed over that you're meant to gloss over when you read it is um, the interaction, I believe, at the where they buy the burritos of some attractive. No, it's, a, it's later. It's at a. It's at a cafe afterwards. Okay. So I think I think it's it's either immediately before, or immediately after. I think it's immediately after they've done this first crime. They're sitting in a cafe, kind of chatting about how they're going to spend their time between solving this crime and now investigating the second one later in the day. And as you say, they're kind of getting at this moment debating to what use this universe is. That Davis seems very uncomfortable with treating this universe as anything but real. He seems to even have a certain degree of guilt over the fact that. These are actual living entities that have been created. We shouldn't abuse them. It is a difficult and in some ways a crime that when we turn this off, they die and cease to exist. Chaz, on the other hand, is very flippant about the whole thing. He sees this very much as a video game where he can just shoot somebody in the head and it doesn't matter, other than that somebody, some bean counter may complain later that it caused too much of a, de of a deviation from what the, they need the world to be. Hey, Spencer, do you yeah. follow traffic laws when you play GTA? Uh, I yeah, sometimes do, in part because depending on the GTA game, the cops are so aggressive that they will straight up shoot you if you don't obey the traffic laws. But otherwise, generally, yes. Uh, there's a game called Mafia, which is one of, the, one of those kind of GTA universes of where I delighted in obeying traffic laws as I went about missions, just because I enjoyed them. I, I actually kind of enjoyed operating in the world as if it was a responsible citizen. So yes, I would be very much in the role of Davis in this particular equation. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't doubt that one, one yeah, bit. In so many ways. Um, <laughs> but oh, Wait, as, wait, in so many ways? We'll, we'll have see. to come back to that once we get to, to the end of this. Uh. <laughs> I, I, I was, I was just going to mean that I actually do collect coins. But, you know, there's other ways we can go from this, too. Uh, but as they're sitting in this little cafe chatting about how they're going to spend their day for the rest of this, Davis makes eyes at a girl across the bar who makes eyes back at him and right. he's very much caught up in uh, his sort of disbelief in his divorce. He uh, refers to his ex or soon to be ex-wife as his wife um, and clearly still has or ha definitely has feelings for her, but so sort of still seems that they have reconcilable differences as opposed to, irreconcilable differences there appears to be a bit of a difference of opinion on that on that point with him bearing a lot more <laughs> hope than uh, other ones seem to bear oh really i wonder why that might be uh, we'll find out why Chaz is very much down on his chances later uh but Chaz walks out of the bathroom suffering from his burrito and encourages him to go interact with this particular girl across the bar, in large part because she isn't real. It costs him nothing. It doesn't matter. If nothing else, it's practice for the real world. Yeah, why not? Um, would you say that uh, Chaz had some mustard gas? Oh, God, sir. Uh, no, I wouldn't say that, but thank you for <laughs> offering that particular pun. You're um, I'm happy to oblige. At, thank you. As they're leaving the diner... Chaz essentially intervenes to force the situation and asks the girl for her number for Davis. She has no immediate response other than to blush, they leave, but then she returns to give him the number. And Davis is temporarily elated with his opinion of Chaz improving pretty much from this point for kind of the rest of the story. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say he's not just temporarily elated. I feel like this is sort of one of those 
confidence boosters that he sort of carries with him. And well, not only does he carry the confidence booster with him, he actually carries the slip of paper with him. Um, and yeah. I feel like this is a fairly common thing where you remember compliments that, that people give you and, and attention that, that people pay to you. I, maybe, I mean, we're, we're both male on this podcast, so, so mm-hmm. probably the male perspective is different from the female perspective, but um, there have definitely been compliments that strangers have paid to me and things like that that I remember for what I would say is completely unreasonable amounts of time afterwards. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember those in both directions in terms of, you know, the odd compliment that a teacher offered you in the second grade that somehow still sticks with you to this day. And also that time in third grade where you burped at the wrong time and everyone stared. Those kind of moments just persist longer than they probably should. I, I'm sort but. of curious what, what the compliment that six six or seven-year-old Spencer got. I could make something up right now, but that was just the first random thought that came in my head. So let's leave that a blank for right now. Okay, fair um, enough. Another ex- I mean, as you said, I should no way have said this was a temporary boost on his, on his uh, mentality. This, is a, this particular event comes back to him several times over the course of the story, where he thinks about calling or he thinks about what it represents. He seems to glory in the fact that this uh, there is in some ways a future that is possibly outside of his ex-wife, as much as he's unwilling to accept that it, he, she is truly his ex. And as we will see later in the story proves remarkably important to how the story ultimately resolves, uh, which is uh, an interesting little twist off what was very much just a seemingly casual uh, moment encounter that wouldn't be that relevant. Yeah. But um, I, ex- I guess the other thing that, that I would sort of offer up is that it very much changes who he is. Um, and, you know, so. we get back to that at, at the end, but um I also think Brendan Sanderson does a very good job of talking about the destruction of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of not something that's, I guess, addressed very often that the end of a relationship, unless, even when something crazy happens, and I was about to say, unless something crazy happens, but even when something crazy happens, you know, if you're in a meaningful relationship for a long period of time, just because that relationship ends doesn't mean the thoughts, the feelings, the memories, or anything else ends just as abruptly. Right. And it, if anything, it's more painful for Davis because his ex-wife has essentially tried to end it abruptly. She has what seems to be a bit of a restraining order on file, both, res- both, both with respect to her and her son, and their son, that... He has not in the real world seen or been allowed to see his son for six months now. And so has been in some ways, and this is another example of how Davis is willing to use this world for his own benefit, has been using this world to go see his son at every opportunity that he can, knowing that it's not ultimately real, but still desperately naming those moments for how hard it is to, as you said, you can't just cut off what you feel. You can't just cut off the various patterns and practices you have and the feelings you've developed over the course of the relationship, but he has seemingly by a court of law been forced to do so in the real world. Or, you know, is unable to for other practical reasons. You know, I didn't, I guess I didn't get the restraining order, but I could see that given tensions or whatever else, he wasn't going to spend time with his son who, 
I guess, you know, if his wife had custody, which it seems like she does, you know, he's not going to spend hours in the evening essentially spending, trying to force her to spend time with him and then sure. spend time with his son. And so when he has this free time in a snapshot, he can go do that. Whereas, you know, he couldn't normally at 2 p.m. or whatever, or 3 p.m. after his son gets out of school while he's sitting in and playing on a playground, you know, go visit and play around with him. It's very possible that it could just be an issue of just convenience, time management, and his own general awkwardness and meekness in trying to confront and deal with this problem. Um, either way, as a result of either the nature of the world and his own personality or legal events, he has been separated from this relationship. And as you say, this one brief little moment with the girl in the diner kind of gives him a bit of a lifeline to a world that's outside of that, gives him an opportunity to actually grow and move beyond in a way that otherwise he didn't seem to practically think was possible. He seemed to be like he was just relishing, well, not even relishing, uh, dwelling in the past rather than having any hope for what uh, a new life might bring. Yeah, I, I guess it sort of seems like this is his one relationship, maybe. Like, he mm -hmm. hasn't really had much experience with anybody else, and so he can't really imagine going on dates with somebody else or that somebody else would find him interesting. And uh, I find it a little bit interesting because... You know, I've seen that in, in other people, and I, I guess I definitely was that way. It was just mm -hmm. a, a long time ago where, uh, you know, I had my first, first girlfriend, and then, you know, there's a period of time between my first and second, and then it was just like, uh, you know, oh, God, what if that was a complete fluke? And, you know, because my first year's girlfriend was, I would say, a little bit later in life than some other people, um, mm -hmm. sort of once I'd gotten to college, and then after that, it's just like, oh, God, like, what if that was, you know the one person that was sort of okay with me as, as a person. And, and I don't know what I'm going to do from here. And then, um, I have my weird and, uh, varied womanizing past, mostly with veterinarians, I guess. Um, but, but yeah, I, I guess I, I see more into his psyche given his interactions with, you know, this mystery lady and his, uh, obsession, I would say with his, now ex-wife or, or separated wife um, and, and how he feels towards them. Right. And just even the coins, just even as just some practical physical means he can remain connected with his son despite the separation. Uh, I'm very much with you in terms of interpreting his, uh, his personality. It's very much my own experience in some ways um, that he seems to have fully just kind of He's trying to come to terms with the fact that this is his world now and it's never going to change. That he doesn't seem to really view it either practically or practically possible that he can find a new way out of this. Uh, he doesn't seem to have any way of escaping from the past. But getting back to the main story, and I think this ties in just another example of how Davis, as much as he is the cleaner cut of our two officers, is perfectly willing to bend the rules for his own um, needs or interests, appears to be a bit of a conspiracy theorist who likes to go on those back-channel forums to find out what people are talking about about various government conspiracies or practical conspiracies. And one of the ones that he appears to have uncovered is an incident where several police cars were called to an abandoned warehouse, seemingly in a business district, or abandoned housing project, uh, and full, several cars on scene, seemingly a big incident, 
but then no police report was filed, and it's just a black void, even in their own police records that they can access as to what particularly occurred. And he persuades Chaz that this should be the place that they go to investigate what exactly occurred here at this given time. And presumably, you know, that there's going to be a fairly quick, you know, peek in, and then they can get to their uh, second crime that they need to uh, investigate with with right. plenty of time, and it's relatively close by, and so, you know, it should be, it shouldn't really affect their schedule, and, you know, it's not like they're doing much of anything anyway, and, you know, he can find other weird foods to add mustard to. <laughs> and Chaz is seemingly happy to just entertain, to, you know, entertain his partner's whims, all the while commenting that it's probably just some politician with a prostitute who bought off the police so that they wouldn't put a, a, a file in their record. But, but Chaz th- also seems mm-hmm. to have a vested interest in uh, basically becoming a real detective, and so is sort of willing to go out and do what he feels is good police work, or at least what David fe- Davis feels is uh, good police work, because in certain ways he does look up to Davis because Davis was a real detective at some point in time, and he knows right. that, and he knows to... A, a fairly large extent that Davis has experience and a personality that he lacks and he does want to emulate. Right. It's an, it's an interesting aspect of the relationship you point out there, where over the course of this, as much as, you know, Chaz is the free wheeler and seemingly wants to use this world as he sees fit, he very much respects Davis's authority, he clearly looks up to Davis, both from his experience in this universe, but also, as you said, his experience as a detective. We find out that Chaz basically had about one year on the force as a traffic cop down in Mexico City before he was assigned up to this job. Got a little bit of time on the street in Clipperton before he was then immediately stuck into this uh, snapshot because he wasn't deemed fit to do anything else. So as you said, opportunities to do police work as Davis sees fit, opportunities to learn from Davis, opportunities to show what Chaz believes he's capable of, He's willing to seize on those, and it's an, it's an interesting difference to their relationship. I was kind of expecting Chaz to do more insult or put down Davis over the course of the story, but he really never does so. He clearly seems to respect and look up to him to at least some degree. Yeah, I, I think it's very much a personality clash in terms of their interpersonal relationship, whereas for the professional relationship, that's a little bit more, I guess, what you'd expect from a more senior partner and a more junior partner. Um, where, you know, I, I feel like I should make reference to your roommate in housing situation in college. Uh, who, who would be who in this particular situation? Uh, I, I, Matt Spencer, I really don't know. I mean, you do seem like the more brash and less rule following one of the, the pair between you and, uh, your college roommate Doug um, and what, you know you, what, you do seem a little bit more solid and, and larger of a person than Doug um, mm-hmm. taller taller is true yeah t- taller is true um, and like I, I can't really place one of you putting mustard on everything but you know if I had to choose it would totally be you <laughs> okay you know I I'll admit there are some there are some points in column A, column B. We can bring, run it by Doug and see what he thinks about the particular issue. Um, but as you say, there are many times that 
uh, Chaz will do things that Davis does not approve of, primarily with respect to violence or doing something that is emotionally or physically devastating to these various inhabitants of the snapshot. But when it comes to actually the main activities they do, where they go, how they do it, the nature of their investigations, Chaz very much defers to Davis and respects what Davis tells him to do and goes about following his orders to the best of his ability. Yeah, and, and in so, terms of all of the actual police work that they do, su- surprisingly, in sort of a turnabout of their relationship, Chaz seems to follow Davis. Right. Chaz knows that his role is the muscle and respects that. He knows that if they're going to go into a room, he's going to go first. But when it comes to plotting out, investigating a crime scene, or even tailing a suspect, Chaz does what Davis set, thinks is best. And from what we can see, Davis, for, for, to the degree that he lacks a certain degree of confidence in, in his abilities, proves to be a very effective detective in a variety of ways. Very knowledgeable, very capable, with excellent instincts for how to go about this. And so when they go and investigate this housing project, which he has a bit of a feeling about what could be here, in large part because he's being cut off from the information, which he finds weird. They go into this very much dilapidated, abandoned home in the middle of a very much run-down neighborhood. And as they're exploring, nothing originally comes to the eye until they find what appears to be a perfectly maintained and preserved pool in a back room with eight bodies stored relatively recently inside. Uh, Yeah, and, and they seem to be to have been suffocated. Yep. And the two of them obviously freak out, not only just from confronting this level of death, even if they're both still debating the degree to which this world is real, and but also the sheer number of bodies, the sheer number of bodies, but also, again, that this is being in some ways covered up, which continues to baffle them. It makes no sense to them that this level of crime would be hidden that they sit back and they watch as the realtors of the bank that seemingly own the property show up and are themselves incredibly disturbed and freaked out by what they find as the police show up to investigate it. All the while, not really putting together anything that strikes them as odd about this, about why this level of crime would be completely wiped off the books. Now, I'm trying to remember here in terms of what they do next. Is this the point that they then decide to go to the police station for further investigation? Yeah. Or they talk to the street drug dealers? I think uh, it's the police station first. Yeah, I think they basically talk to Maria, and maybe in the real world. Um, or maybe it was in the simulation and try and get some information. She basically says, the hey, that's, you know, above your pay grade and outside your clearance. And they're like, well, we have, you know, unlimited clearance for this. And she's like, well, no. There's a step above unlimited clearance, and they basically go in and, and then talk to them face-to-face. Uh, uh, very, face. very brashly. They essentially just walk into the place. Chaz holds up a badge and says, Hey, everyone, look here. You're not real. Deal with it how you want. We're going over this way. And as you pretty much universally see whenever they flash this reality badge, everyone in this universe immediately knows what it is, immediately knows they aren't real, and immediately responds... However, their particular psychology deems fit. Yep. Some Which get rain? angry, some get depressed, some, you know, are suicidal located with it and some less. Um, as you say, you know, the their boss is suicidal. Um, uh, and I, I guess I wonder if he's suicidal or he sort of knows what else can happen and wants the sort of ultimate expression of power. 
Yeah. Which... It, he, he seems in no way depressed or angry of the course of these events. He just sees it, goes into his office, and shoots himself as a matter of course. Perhaps, as you said, maintaining, maintaining that regardless of the fact I am not real, this decision is, and I'm acting on it. Or also respecting the fact that this life, whatever it is, is finite. I'll choose to end it on my own terms rather than whenever they'll just choose to pull the plug. Don't right. I? Or he could Marie know on that Chaz is mm-hmm. a little bit of a hot shot and, you know, doesn't want to get tortured or, you know, any whole host of other things. And <laughs> and maybe True, and good point. I very much see this being the case that a lot of higher ups are trained to commit suicide or something else to essentially protect state secrets or, or whatever else. Now, that's a very interesting thought. That That is a very interesting thought. I don't even think they necessarily have pondered that, that rather than reveal information about this project or about other police records, that certain individuals would be so thoroughly conditioned that even in a simulation where their own reality is falling about them, they still have a preset, programmed, and trained pathway to resolve that particular leak on potential knowledge. That, that is an interesting thought, BJ. I mean, it sort of makes sense to me that if you have some given piece of technology that there would be some training associated with it, other than just like, ah, go in there and research a crime. Have fun. I'm suddenly blanking on the name of the movie. Look at that. Uh, What's the name of the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio of where they're going into people's uh, dreams? Inception. Thank you. It's like with Inception of where their main target has had his consciousness trained to have various defenses put in place. Yeah, I mean... Once you know this this technology exists, you would naturally be trained up to resist it in certain ways so as to prevent uh, either your own details or state secrets from getting out. Yep. Uh, Maria, on the other hand, their immediate superior, is pretty blasé about this. She is a relatively calm, responsible person, um, and upon being confronted with the fact that she's not real... I would say she borders on flippant about it. Yeah, she sort of seems like, eh, it's okay. You know, whatever, I'm going to do my job. Um, I guess I don't, I didn't consider her their direct superior, more like uh, maybe director of the project or the person that they call into rather than their superior. She's at least a manager in some ways of the project, in the sense that she had both um, personnel. She had she was filling out personnel reports on both of them, where she was offering her own commentary on their performance and abilities. Yeah, so I think she's at least a couple rungs above them. Maybe not officially like a lieutenant or a captain in some way, but at least managing the project that they are a part of, and who and she's the one that they report to. Yeah, but. Right now, they're using her as a gate. Also, she seemingly has superior access to information they do, because they immediately go to her and her computer to find out more about why this particular incident happening at this one warehouse has been covered up. What is it about it? What more information have the police got as to what is going on there? And why don't they they have access? And they pretty quickly come across a treasure trove. Yeah. Um, they, they find loads and loads of information, basically that there seems to be a serial killer who, uh, is aware of snapshots and believes that he is in a snapshot and is killing people because he believes he's in a snapshot and they have a variety of crimes that this man has committed in the past with, in. So, and sort of incredible numbers of victims. 
Mm-hmm. I think we're combining a little bit of detail that they get from here and then later learn from the drug dealers. But yeah, I, up front, they call, I think they call him the photographer because he's aware in some ways that this is a snapshot world. And what they know about the victims seems to suggest that they think there's a bit of a common theme of where there's a t- they all seem to be associated in some ways with water. Bodies drowned, bodies found in the ocean. All, I think in some ways they were described as being relatively young in a variety of ways, but... Um, because this is in some ways associated with the Snapshot Project and someone's aware of it, the implication that that's being drawn that Maria presents to them is that they don't want the individuals in the, the individuals in the Snapshot Project to know about it because there's already a level of public distrust that comes with this. And so if the Snapshot Project is essentially associating with something that's, that's tied to them, it may only accentuate that level of distrust. Notably, neither Davis nor Chaz buy this explanation at all and seemingly seem to think that Maria is actively trying to hide something from them. Not lie to them, but actively hide what the real reason is that they're being boxed out of this. Yes, and to which Chaz basically takes the uh, my way or the highway route. Well, they start to try to play good cop, bad cop, but Chaz apparently is very bad at bad cop. Or very good at it, sort of depending on how you view things. Well, he doesn't get much info. He does get a bullet in the head. <laughs> yeah. Um, so but that level of that level of bad cop in the real world gets you in prison, getting getting having a good cop bad cop routine done to you. Well. Um, yeah. So well, I... basically, the it. I think this at this point it really highlights the attitude and blasé nature of Chaz to the snapshot, where he is perfectly okay willing and able to just kill a coworker outright because he thinks that it's a faster end to uh the path that he's decided is the way forward right and meanwhile davis is rather horrified by what just occurred and also having a degree of perspective that chas lacks aware that it's not certain how these other various members, people in the snapshot around them are going to react to this alteration of their reality. Some people are horrified, some people are suicidal, some are just resigned to the experience. Some prove violent. And he immediately locks eyes with an individual who's already pulled his gun and is having the thought in his head that some people in this moment have the thought that I've just seen violence, but I can't respond to it because he's real and I'm not. and I'm not going to kill a real person. Other people respond that, I'm not real, what does it matter? Yeah, and, and in a room full of people with guns who um, maybe aren't as trigger-happy as uh, cops in the real world might be, um, mm-hmm. but still, you know, are armed and are expected to use deadly force on a, a regular occasion, are essentially confronted with a murder of one of their colleagues for some reason, right. Chaz doesn't expect this to go poorly. Yeah, but he already has shown his badge to everyone in the room and seems to think that that's enough to have him essentially be immune from any possibility of harm. Whereas Davis, with more, with much more experience as to this real world and its potential consequences, I mean, he knows for a fact that he replaced his prior partner because she died in this world, is actively maintaining a, a, maintaining an active stance to what might occur and is being actively aware about what everybody else is doing. Luckily, yeah. nothing plays out in a dangerous way, and Davis then sets the next course for their investigation. 
to find the quote-unquote owners of this home and see what he can find, uh, the uh, warehouse where the bodies were found, and see what more he can find from him about who might be uh, the photographer. their uh, new serial killer they've found. Yeah. Um, and basically they get a couple of leads, which they follow up, and eventually through what's fairly rote and boring detective work, I would say. But well um, done, detective work. Yeah, no, 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 I, I wouldn't disagree. And, you know, it's well-written and it's fun to read. But basically, mm. you know, through a bit of detective work, they he finds uh, basically where the killer is at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, notably, there's one thing that I want to reference just because it comes up a lot of times early in the story without explanation of this uh, time and name. What was it, like 2017 Warsaw? Yeah. Of where Davis, we see this entire story from Davis's perspective. We never really see through anybody else's eyes. And he has a lot of varied thoughts that don't necessarily make sense in any given moment that you have slowly teased together. The 2017 Warsaw, on the, on one, on the other hand, is never really explained until much later in the story. But it's uh, something that is... They, they do, I think, say that that's the second crime that they need to... No, no, no. It's happening near Warsaw, but that particular number has offered very little explanation. Okay. That we find out at some point later on that there, we, there is a shooting that's going to happen on Warsaw, which is seemingly near where their location that they need to be to observe this domestic incident. And they need to be careful to avoid that area. But that particular date and why Warsaw is relevant doesn't isn't well explained, but it's something that comes up to him several times. So I just wanted to tease that out because it's going to be relevant later on in the story. As you said, after their investigation with this gang, they're able to find out who this potential owner is, or at least another potential address that they might be at, which I think is an abandoned old school, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, uh, I kind of feel like it's the other way around for some reason, that the abandoned old school was where the pool was, and then this other place was where they find the uh, bee sting victims. Um Either way, as you said, yeah. they come across this second place, which uh, has, a, I think, an empty pool in it as well. And in a locked, like, I think it's a freezer, they find eight or nine additional victims thoroughly bitten all to hell by thousands and tens of thousands of bees that were locked in there with them. And are which, clearly undergone, essentially, anaphylactic shock or whatever, and, and are suffocating of their, their own... Uh, as their own immune system attacks them. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, depending on the severity of a bee allergy, that seems a bit excessive. You don't need mu much more than a few to send someone who is legitimately allergic to bees into anaphylactic shock. Any person bitten by that uh, with that much bee toxin in their system will go into anaphylactic shock. For eight people putting literally tens of thousands of bees in there with them, seems like a certain amount of overkill if they are, as they later deduce, actually allergic to bee stings. Yeah. But well, so what I would say is it's, you know, there are people that just aren't essentially aren't reactive. And so um, for the most part, unless you are allergic, it shouldn't the number shouldn't matter mm -hmm. um, or the amount shouldn't matter per se. It's it's more the, you know, whether your immune system decides that that's not something that should be there and has a particular reaction or not. Um, but, yeah, you know, maybe tens of thousands, you know, it doesn't really matter at that point. You're just. <laughs> I mean, it is legitimately a toxin. It's not purely just an allergy irritant in the same way that some other things would be. It's not like it's, say, pollen, which is utterly unharmful unless your body essentially chooses to overreact to it. It is a poison. 
But as you say, in nature, people who are allergic to it, they are, their body is massively overreacting to this intrusion. Yeah. Um, but as I said, the key thing that they immediately draw out of this is that this does not in any way match any of the prior MO victims, at least not from a, a, a clear way. The pool is empty. These individuals are not, are not clearly uh, suffocated, other than possibly by the anaphylactic shock, and they don't seem to bear any particular hallmarks of the prior victims. So like, their theory more, about what's driving this pretty rapidly changes as they now have a new bit of evidence to draw from. Right. Um, and so I, I think the previous ones were, you know, soaked in water, so they couldn't pinpoint the time of their death, which is something that right. they need for the snapshot, which gives us a little bit more information about what the snapshot is and what information they need to generate and or function in a snapshot. Mm -hmm. um, it also sort of tells us maybe the expense or the difficulty of a snapshot because, you know, presumably given that most people have somebody else that knows that they exist, you know, when that person disappeared and when they showed up, you know, is a valid amount of time for, you know, you to research where they went and where they've been. And so, you know, if it, if it was a couple of weeks, you know, why not have a snapshot for a couple of weeks? And that's clearly right. something that they're either not able to do or, you know, it's too expensive or something along those lines and, you know, may tie into sort of the mysterious uh, organic nature of the technology behind the snapshot. Right. And I think in some ways Davis suggests that they really only use the snapshot for people or crimes that matter, that they notably say that, oh, it was a shame that that guy shot the mayor's son, that if he hadn't shot somebody else, maybe the snapshot team wouldn't have been assigned. Right. That particularly these victims that they find in the pool, I think they say that they are like um, people on the lower fringes of society, people that are below notice runaways, individuals that there might not be reports published very quickly, or if there are reports, they're from several cities away and the people who are filing the reports don't know where they are. So it, it's the classic serial killer victim of the individuals that are below notice, and so the level of reports wouldn't come in quickly. As you said, though, if the snapshot technology was like a Star Trek holodeck of where they just turned it on with their instant limitless energy generator, <laughs> there, there wouldn't be these practical limitations on when they can do it and where they can do it. These are either, as you said, a result of the fact of limited resources or the massive cost of this project, which they suggest at various times, or the practical restraints that society has put on them. There may be caps on how many times they can go in in a given year just because some law has been put in place setting it there. We don't know. We just know that they seemingly are limited in how they can go about doing this. But from this new detail they have about the bees, Davis, smart one that he is, starts to deduce what other things he knows about the various victims from these other crimes teases out that, well, um, the one set of individuals, uh, from what I can tell about some of the victims, they were all nearsighted. Another set of individuals were um, all paralyzed, the ones that drowned in the pool. I can't remember the ones from the ocean. They, uh, they, had, they had some other very notable uh, def uh, defect or disability about them as well. And now seemingly these ones that were locked in the um, freezer were allergic to bees. And so it starts to set a bit of a theme about each of these sets of victims are in some way, pardon the term, flawed, at least in the eyes of our serial killer. Yes. And given that they've already heard from the various gang members that he views um, this world, at, both from the gang members and the police, that this world is itself a snapshot simulation and that we need, we need to stop the deviations 
that seemingly this guy's come to the conclusion that those individuals who flawed, who are flawed in his mind, are deviations in the universe, and that he needs to eradicate these so that the universe can persist. Yes, and because he knows that a snapshot can cease to exist, and so uh, I don't remember exactly if it's from talking to him or you know some deductions that, that Dave's has, is that basically for the universe to continue, for the snapshot to continue, that this uh, serial killers treating as real, the fewer deviations, the better. And, and these people that have something wrong with them, that have disabilities, are deviation manifestations within the snapshot that to keep the, the world that he's in, the snapshot that he believes he's in going, he has to eliminate this, these deviations. And Davis basically says, hey, you know, um, yes, I'm a cop within a snapshot, but, you know, it's my job to keep the snapshot going, keep deviations to a minimum. So, hey, I'm here to help you. Yeah, he's lying, but it's a very convincing lie for this guy at that time. Well, it's an interesting, pers- it, well, it, it's an interesting perspective on a serial killer because it, everybody wants to be the hero of your own story. And it frames what he's doing if you if what he's assuming uh, in this case, it is true for this particular simulation that he's in, but. If what he was saying, if he was thinking was accurate, even in the real world, what he's doing is arguably humanitarian, because the more the, the, more, the larger the more that he's able to keep these deviations out, the more the ability that he's able to prevent the universe from coming apart of the threads and differing from the universe it needs to be for the snapshot to persist, the longer he's extending the lives of everybody that's in this world. Now his view about what a deviation is is fundamentally flawed in all kinds of ways. Very, but uh, he seemingly is motivated. Based. What'd you say? Very uh, eugenics based. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, him, uh, him, learn girls would be very proud. Um, <laughs> but if he he seems to, his motivation seems to be in some ways from a proper place of where I'm just trying to make our universe go on for a few days longer. I'm the one that's keeping the world running. If I didn't do this, we would all die. Yes. And it, it's actually interesting that um, we see a little bit later, Davis's perspective is that when the snapshot is turned off, the people in the snapshot do die. And basic, and he turns off the snapshot at the end of every one of his insertions because he believes that everybody in it dies. And one of the people that's always, excuse me, basically always in it is his son and he's unwilling to let anybody else kill his son right it it shows again the starkly different view that both davis and uh, chaz have on, their, on this universe of where davis makes no benefits about it that what they're doing is morally wrong that the level of manipulation that they're putting in this universe the effect that they have on the people in it is no less sin than if it was done in the real world because it is truly real Whereas we've talked about with Chaz, he was remarkably flippant as to any of these moral quandrums. And has no problem killing one of his co-workers. Just, you know, the, I guess in his mind, ends justify the means. Though I didn't even really see what ends he was getting towards. It had no purpose. She was cooperating. And if the greed that she wasn't, shooting her wasn't going to solve the problem. It seemed, if, it was, if anything else, it was kind of cathartic on his part that he'd always just... I, they don't, they don't even really go into detail on that. It's just something that he does in that given moment because, oh, well, it happened. Like a rocket to the back. 
Yeah, very much so. That, thank you for those Halo references. Um, in I, terms I of what happens, anytime I can conjure up some, you know, beloved memories for you, I, I'll I do my best. It's it's been a remarkable thing of these uh, Megum Talks podcasts, of where it's been a fun exploration of my prior bits of trauma and all kinds of previously forgotten ways as they come steamrolling back on me. <laughs> but returning to the story, um, as said, they've now deduced. They now have a profile of who their suspect is. They now know his motivation. They now know a location that he's going to return to. And so Davis, being a proper detective, essentially proposes they do a stakeout. But, as they're able to find out from one victim that is unfortunately unfor- uh, or unfortunately still alive, the suspect in question will not return until several hours later. Not until, I think it was 7.30 at night. Yep. And so they've got a lot of time to wait and a lot of different options on how to spend their time. Where... Oddly, Chaz suggests that they go to a park somewhere, which Davis immediately knows what he's suggesting and immediately jumps on the opportunity. What's odd about this is that it's Chaz suggesting it, but we don't really see the importance of that immediately. But the park in question appears to be in front of Davis's old house. That's the park in question that his son goes to play in after he comes back from school. I guess this is sort of where, in my mind, we're in New York City, and playgrounds being sort of all over the place and loads of children being there like after school just like fits and sort of along with you know the gang violence and being near the ocean and and you know having this relatively large city and and sort of all the details I guess that of the city and their experience sort of fit together in my mind. I just kind of assumed it was farther to the southwest because they talked about how that the uh, city has a treaty with Mexico City. Um, that seemingly the majority of the population of the city is to some degree Hispanic, where they all talk about how it's unusual to see a white person. That they they even comment on the few people that they see that is white. Uh, the, two, the two people that presumably work for the bank. And even you talk been about to how, Washington Heights. True, there are many boroughs in New York City that are remarkably diverse in a variety of ways. However, in terms of the closeness of the relationship they set up with Mexico City, I assumed, it, I assumed it was probably more on the bo- on the former border between the two nations. Um, but we could offer any theory. As you said, uh, it's funny you mentioned about the parks. When I was a kid, I got a lot, of, a lot of relatives on Long Island. I found that so strange that if I walked out the front door, there would be, a, there would be one park, and I walked out the back door and went through the chain-link fence... There would be a different little playground park. Yeah, and Whereas, there are so many, you know, little playgrounds and and small areas and small green spaces that that kids can play in that are essentially embedded within a larger city. And I guess that's sort of why I pick up on that because, you know, and I guess I'm in the southwest of the United States, you could say, and there very definitely are parks and things like that that the kids play in, but it's not just randomly on a corner, sure. you know, just sort of right outside the apartment complex um, and where a lot of kids are playing. You know, there might be, when I was in Illinois, there was like a fairly large, like two or three fairly large playgrounds within the larger complex that I was in. But pretty much any time that, I was running around my complex or, or taking a walk or something like that. There might be like one or two kids, but it wasn't where kids would go play on a regular basis. Right. It, it's a, a very sad statistic I heard previously that part of the reason the McDonald's developed 
it's little playground areas inside so many of their various locations is that for most children, it would be the only playground they ever got to be on is that that's this, this, super depressing. It is super depressing, but it's very true. And that I mean, growing up, there were playgrounds, but it was the kind of playground you had to get into a car to drive to, or I had to walk like two or three miles to get to. And that was just growing up in Charlotte, which is a nice, well-developed city. There weren't those kind of neighborhood playgrounds you could just go to the way there are in some cities. As you said, very distinctly in New York, it's a very classic New York thing. Um, but he goes there, and he sees his son, and he knows to be there at this precise time because he knows his wife is in the house with the blinds shut, seemingly maybe taking a nap or whatever else, for this period of time. We find out later what she's actually doing, but at this moment he doesn't know. So he knows that he can have a couple hours alone with his son. And seemingly Chaz knows this too, and that they've kind of set up this established pattern between them, that they'll go to the park and Chaz will go off by himself, and he'll get to spend some time with his son that he otherwise doesn't get to spend in the real world. And so he does, and, and his son is super excited to see him, and they sort of make the... Uh, make it... It's like, oh, you know, his son's super excited to see him, and, and so this is the first time that he would see him in a long period of time, but for... Uh, Davis, you know, it's been since the last time they were in the snapshot and they did this, not, you know, six months. Yeah. And he even comments, sadly, that as much as he's enjoying this as real as it feels, in this world, he gets to see his son every day that he wishes to, and that his son gets to see him despite however long it's been in the past. Whereas in the real world, his son has a dad that feels like it's abandoned him, that his son doesn't understand why his dad hasn't come to see him in six months' time. Um, and that is intensely tragic in all kinds of varieties of ways. But seemingly, this little non-sequitur, little happy scene that just provides background for Davis comes to an end. And Oops. they go back to their sting. Do you like which... this uh, foreshadowing where his son, Hal, and his name is Davis and his son's name is Hal. I just want to throw that out there. Um yeah. But sorry, oh, sorry, Dave, I can't do that. Yeah, uh, he looked up, looked morose for a minute, then perked up. Want to be a monster? And Davis responds, "I'd love to be a monster." <laughs> yeah, I didn't actually really catch that foreshadowing at the time, but in retrospect, that does say a bit of what he intends to do before this story is done. Yep. And in, in many ways, they comment several times that. Both, presumably, his superiors and also Davis view this snapshot world as an opportunity to improve himself. And the main way he sees that he can improve himself is by being, how he feels, more decisive. That if he can actually be willing to take active steps, presumably the main way that he's looking to do with violence to accomplish his ends, it'd be something that he can then bring back into the real world and get where he actually wants to be. He sees the snapshot as being very much an exile from what real detective work, work is and from what real life is. And so both he and Chaz are trying to find their own ways out. Davis through self-improvement, and Chaz in many ways the same way, but primarily in his case through developing and understanding proper police procedure. So they go about here in terms of setting up their own little stakeout and sting for this uh, suspect going to the second murder site. One other bit of foreshadowing that I didn't pick up but when I thought about it, I was sure was there. Um, the It says, it didn't last, though. It couldn't last. Eventually, he spotted Chaz waiting for him at a nearby corner, and he couldn't believe the time was already uh, was over already. 
And, you know, Chaz was the banner of the real world waiting to get along and dragging him away from his son. Yeah, I guess I didn't really pick up on that, too, because Chaz is the one who has dragged him away from his sons in a variety of ways, in the real world in particular. Yep. Um, should we just reveal now that Chaz is having an affair with his wife? Just lay yeah. that out there. We'll get into more detail about it. Yeah, we'll get into more detail about it later, but uh, Chaz is having an affair with his wife, and so... Um, well, kind of. Well, kinda. well he, she, sort of very much so, but, you know... It's an, in, it's an, it's an interesting kind of affair. Yes, um, and um, it is revealed that later on in the book, and, and we'll get to that, that basically when uh, Davis visits with his son, Chaz visits with his now sort of ex-wife. Uh, the the simulacrum of his ex-wife, which Chaz points out, but they both kind of agree doesn't really matter. Or both agree doesn't really matter. Yes. Uh, I said, we'll discuss it when the time comes. They go to the stakeout. Uh, which Davis is again coordinating, and Chaz is confused about, but eager like a happy puppy to learn and be helpful in any way that he can. Yep. Um, which involves him recognizing again that he is the muscle, and being willing to go in to see whether the uh, suspect is in sight, and also be able to observe him in sight when the particular time comes. And as he leaves, as a testament, and this is odd, I say it's a testament to their improving relationship, but as we know, Davis ultimately intends to kill him. Um, maybe it is still an improving relationship in spite of that fact. It's <laughs> interesting. Um, he reveals to Chaz uh, why he was you know, exiled to the uh, snapshot world, which, as we talked about, he was a high-profile scene, hostages on site, bad guys with guns. When he was confronted ran it right into the bad guy and had an opportunity to put him down in a way that would protect other people and froze and couldn't do it. And as a result, one of his partners died and he lost all respect or trust within the department and was kind of cast off to this world in the hopes of some that he would be removed from the ability to harm anybody else in the future, or not protect anybody else in the future, and the hopes of others that he might be able to improve so that quality, skilled investigator that he is could come back to the force in a way that they all could count on. Um, Chaz, on the other hand, already knows all this. And it, it's, I suppose, a little bit of foreshadowing line that I didn't pick up at the start that Davis admits, kind of, again, betrayed and angry to himself, that he forgets sometimes how good of a liar Chaz is. Yep. Um, that, that Chaz has already looked in his file, knows about, you know, all of, basically all of Davis's past and and he was just waiting for Davis to be able to reveal it on his own which I guess I sort of appreciate as I appreciated it too um, I, I thought it, I thought it was going to be a touching moment but it was notable that Davis does not treat it that way at all yeah he doesn't which is understandable as we'll get to shortly um, yeah. but basically as a result of this stakeout, um, they catch the photographer. Mm -hmm. um, and follow him back to his very normal domestic suburban home. Um, to where he's sort of planning on leaving, but they get to talk to him uh, before he does. And Davis has sort of a long conversation with him about what he Notably is. Notably alone. Notably yes. alone. Chaz is outside. Um, what he is, what he's doing, uh, who he is, and what his plan is. And 
basically the photographer is, uh, as we mentioned before, trying to get rid of these deviations and has found a bunch of school children that are allergic to peanuts. A very common allergy even in our own time. Yep, and is uh, figuring out essentially how to sneak peanut-ridden snacks into this schoolyard and, or this school, and uh, kill a bunch of these defective children as he sees it. To, as said, remove deviations from the universe, because he understands enough about how the snapshot works to know that deviations are bad and bring about the end of the universe faster than if they were not there. And is inherently inclined to not trust this one cop who seemingly who he knows is seemingly coming after him or knows that exists to end the universe whenever it is when to do so. But Davis either out of revealing some of his own legitimate philosophy or out of very clever, quick thinking on how to get under this guy's trust, starts talking that, yes, I am here to remove the deviations. Yes, I do believe in and live in this universe and wish this universe to persist and be maintained. And then, as an ultimate act of trying to earn the guy's trust, takes his pistol and shoots the guy's father in the head. A guy whose father, I think, is blind. Yeah, that sounds, sounds about right. And... Uh, you know, again, sort of knowing where this story is going, maybe he's preparing himself. Yeah, he, this, at the time he views himself as a big moment. He's not sure whether he can do this, as necessary as it is. As you said, he may well be trying to prepare himself for the uh, instant that he's planned in the not-too-distant not too future. This instant does earn the guy's trust, and he does reveal all of his motivations and objectives, and is trying to work with the guy about, how can we work this together? How can we do this? And of course, Chaz being Chaz right then walks in and shoots the guy in the head. And the other side of it is they do pass on this information to Maria. They do after this incident, yeah. um, On the outside world, and and basically, you know, hope, because they they don't get a response, that this will be they'll actually be able to do something to help the real world where it wasn't something that they were sent in for essentially a very, in their mind, minor task of, you know, helping out a high profile investigation or, or something sort of along the way since they're in there anyway. A minor task they notably do not ultimately end up fulfilling. They fulfill the first one, but the second one just kind of goes to pot in large part because immediately after shooting the suspect at the head, them, now very closely located to Warsaw Street, and the time ticking very rapidly to 2017, we finally find out about what Davis has been pondering the entirety of this story and the nature of their relationship that Chaz didn't fully understand. Um, and as we mentioned previously, basically Chaz has been having an affair with Davis's wife, and... Kinda. Kinda. Well, no, he actually did, so initially started in the real world, um, I believe what? before they divorce proceedings happened, but that's it, not did. super clear. No, I, th- I think he spoke. He, said, he says that it happened once before the divorce proceedings started, and that it's never happened again in the real world. But, but in every the single time he takes, every single time he takes him to the park, in the park in the snapshot, it is to the ex-wife as if she's just seeing Chaz for the second time. And Jazz is only too willing to make use of that particular circumstance. And sort of, you know, you have to wonder, as, as Davis obviously does, if Chaz is what has caused this, you know, rift in his 
only relationship essentially and and bringing down the the world that 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 he has sort of insulated himself with you know it it may or may not have been the ideal relationship or or whatever else because presumably his wife was relatively unhappy to be willing to have an affair with his partner um Mm -hmm. and you know may not have been deserving of the confidence that he seems to have been placed in her or there are many other things that were at issue with their relationship but clearly wasn't as healthy as he seems to have been imagining it right which may be in part due to the nature of his job i'm sure his job is not only psychologically taxing but also time consuming where he's required to spend vast periods of time in this world away from them he's just over the course of this book spending at least what seems to be a day or two in this other universe who knows how long, who, who, know, who knows how much time he was able to actually spend with his family over the course of his duties? And very um, likely has PTSD from the shooting of his partner oh, that he was unable to act. I mean, presumably at some point in the somewhat distant past, his life basically went, you know, pardon the blue, but went to shit because yeah. of a number of reasons. And it seems like about the right time for you know, a rift to happen with his wife, and then she cheats on him with his partner, then, you know, realizes that at that point their relationship is essentially over, they go through divorce proceedings, Davis being the consummate detective eventually finds out sort of what's going on with these, within the snapshot, and then culminates in the, uh, apex i guess of and the you know high point i guess of the story where he decides that he's going to kill davis or kill chas and very pointedly and this shows again the level of premeditation that is associated with the crime he's planning to do here that the reason that he's been repeating that street and that time is that he knows that the gang shootout is going to happen right there right then and he knows. with the gun that he has gotten out of evidence that, you know, at some point in the, the story, uh, Chaz remarks, like, oh, that looks like a new gun. You know, it's interesting that you're carrying that. And he's like, yeah, you know, yeah, I thought it would be a good gun. And mm-hmm. it's the gun that is from that, that shooting. And so, you know, he, he knows the snapshot well enough to know that a partner can die from it, as has happened to his previous partner. And that the best way to cover it up is with the actual gun that was used to shoot on that day. Yeah, the, you could write it off as just being an unfortunate stray shot that struck him down as we were just going past, because as he said fr- frequent times, there are dangers in this world. There are accidents. People can get hurt or killed. And if the, one of the guns that was involved in that shooting just happens to hit him, who is to be the wiser? And, and that sort of leads us to understand why he's confident that he could actually pull the trigger, you know, when he was thinking about it and maybe why he pulled the trigger before just to make sure that he'd be able to do that within a snapshot initially with somebody that he sort of felt was real because he very much believes that the people in the snapshot are real in a, in a certain sense and that he'd be able to do it later, but he decides not to and he gets a confession from Chaz and you know that their relationship seems to have progressed to a point where he can't actually kill his partner 
I think it's a mix between two things there. As you said, Chaz, their, the relationship he's had with Chaz has progressed to a certain point. I do legitimately believe that when he confessed to Chaz there, it was part of their very much evolving and growing relationship over the course of these books, even though he intended to shoot him 20 pages later. Um, it's interesting how Chaz reacts to this as well, is that there's no anger, there's no real depression, there's no fighting against it, there's no begging for mercy. He's very much resigned to his fate. He in some ways feels as if he deserves it and as if it's the right thing for his partner to be able to take this right now. Yeah. So that there, there is an element of their own group relationship in terms of what decision Davis ultimately makes. But another key element to it, and one that's repeated in his head, is every bit of character growth that he's had as a result of, again, butterfly effect at work, that one little that one girl in the bar who gave him, gave him uh, her number. That he's still where, holding on to and it makes him feel better. Notably, he isn't at this point. Oh, he threw, um, it, threw it away? He threw it away previously. Okay. Because he wipes it off. It uh, wouldn't matter. It wouldn't be real anyway. But it is a lodestone that has come back to him several points over the course of the story. He kept the number for a very long time. And even after he's thrown it away, it's still something that he thinks about. About, I know I need to move beyond this. I know I've got to set a new life. I know logically, that I can have a future. And with this girl coming up to me, with this girl actually blushing, giving her number, I know even emotionally and subjectively that there is a future. And at this point, da-da-da, Brandon Sanderson's very, you know, key uh, facet of his writing is there's a twist. Well, as I said, he doesn't shoot him. They report in the crime. They're sitting on the street next to each other, and two individuals walk up. And one he's never seen before. One one he's never seen before, and one he very distinctly has. She seems familiar. Quite. He even blushes and apologizes to her that he threw away her number, but they really meant to call her, and she blushes back. Uh, and there's seemingly two agents that are asking him why he just didn't shoot his partner right now, which raises obvious questions as to what the hell is going on and how they know this. Um, he proceeds to somewhat confusingly answer the few questions before, in the background, Chaz screams out something along the lines of, no, no fucking way, no way, and starts to pull his gun before he's very casually gunned down by the other officer. And then any doubts in our mind as to what's going on evaporate. Yep. And then they sort of ask Davis, you know, what did we do wrong? You know, why why didn't you shoot Chaz? And clearly, you know, Davis, the, the wheels and cogs in Davis's mind spin very quickly. And mm -hmm. he knows exactly what's going on. And he tells her that... You know, giving him the number, something physical to hold on to, created enough of a deviation that he no longer, he wasn't going to kill Chaz. Right. That that little bit of an opportunity at character growth was just enough to drive him on a completely different course. And that, as we talked about, that one little moment that sticks with you was enough to make him a completely different person by the time his moment of his moment came about. And. Now we find out something that we didn't know was previously possible was a snapshot of a snapshot. Seemingly, they didn't know it was possible either. Yes. If they're being in any way honest with him. 
Um, and basically they go over what actually happened that, you know, he did kill Chaz, but he was too far away. So his plan was very good, but not quite perfect. And, you know, he initially confessed and then recanted. And, and so they had to find more evidence against him and they were using this snapshot to do so. And sort of once he finds out what's going on, he then turns to whether the information that he got about the photographer was real and was useful because he sort of resigned that his life in here is over once, once he understands what's going on. Right. And this notably ties back to something that he'd said previously of where him and Chaz are debating, uh, would we want be able to stay in here forever? Would we want this uh, snapshot to become essentially their future, their real life? And they both agree that they would, but for kind of different reasons, at least at first, of where, you know, Chaz wants it because he could do whatever he wanted. But Davis basically says that he would want to just so he can see that he had an effect on things, just that he could see that his actions actually were able to influence the universe and change it in some manner, good or bad, wouldn't matter, but just to prove that he was relevant. Notably, Chaz seizes on that, too, to a certain degree. And I think this moment here at the end of where he's very much trying to find out that tell me something that happened here, either this time or when it really occurred, actually mattered, that I really made a difference, that I helped or hurt or whatever else. And they do give him that. They do admit that the evidence that he put together regards to the fact he shot his partner in the process did allow them to successfully not only arrest the photographer, but stop him from committing the next crime that he was planning. And and, and I guess on the opposite side, that you know, he has changed because of it. And yeah, he's a better person than the real, real him was. Right. And, and he, this bothers him because, because of how real he believes everything in a snapshot is, he complains to them that it's like, you know, I'm the better person. I'm the one that didn't commit the crime. And yet I'm the one that's going to be killed. Right. That notably, because I have improved, real me is going to get off. The murderer is going to escape while while I will die as a failed experiment. And they kind of just shrug it off and walk out of the world, disappearing as the real people can from the snapshot at any time, as he just ponders for a few moments how it will end as the universe ends mid-sentence for him. And the one thing that I did think was... Maybe not so, so much of a surprise, but basically the badge sh- had his life flash before his eyes, you know, his entire life up until that point, you know, the good yeah. and the bad. And so that might inform different people's reactions to why they have, you know, either a depressed or resigned or a angry response to what the badge is. And mm-hmm. um, as you say, you know, it sort of ends mid-sentence, which uh, Sanderson's prides himself on, which I thought was funny. Yeah, uh, this, the, the, I guess you had the same version I did on Kindle, maybe, but uh, the uh, postscript is really kind of funny. It's interesting to see in the eyes of the author as he talks about the idea that he had and how it really didn't work and how he had to make it work in various ways. And as you say, how he's really, I think, unduly proud of the fact that he ends mid-sentence. There's clear pride in how he did that. And I'm just kind of reading it going, okay, yeah, figured you would. Yeah, it, it's uh, sort of unsurprising given the uh, setting and, and all the tropes associated with it. But, 
you know, we'll, we'll give it to you. It, it, it's a very good novella. It's a fun read. And, yeah. you know, if you want to follow some tropes every so often, it, it makes the twists that much better. It's an interesting also reveal into the um, mindset of an author in a modern world of where tropes are actually common knowledge now. You can just go on TV tropes and browse them. That he was fully aware of the fact that all of his readers are going to assume that, that Davis and Chaz are in a uh, snapshot. That he just knew for that from page two, everyone's going to assume that that's the case. So that couldn't be the trick. That couldn't be the resolution. That couldn't just be the sole way that this wraps up. It had to be tied to something else for it to actually be compelling. It's interesting to see that. I, I remember um, a stand-up a, a historian that actually focused on stand-up comics talking about that. It used to be back in the '50s that a stand-up comic could have one routine, and he could do that every different city across the nation for 30 years, because yep. no one no one else would be able to watch it. It'd be fresh every time he went to it. Presumably for a writer too, he could publish a book, and not everybody could then go on Reddit, you know comment and hyperanalyze it and kind of categorize all of its various themes. Writers in the modern world have to be aware of the fact that your tropes are already known. What new things can you add to them? That, so it's, it's actually really funny that you say that because uh, I would say one of the biggest critiques of one of the most well-known stories is that it doesn't follow the tropes that everybody want it, want it to and... They, Which one? they hate it for that. Star Wars. Oh, uh, the most recent Star Wars? Or, you know, the the prequel memes or the uh, oh, post-trilogy, sure. too. Because everybody loved the, the original trilogy, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, there are some outliers, and, you know, we're not talking to you. But for the most part, everybody loved it because it is... The, he took the hero's journey, and he made it into three movies. Yeah, and it, it, he didn't do that for the 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 prequel trilogy, and he didn't really do that for you know the second post three trilogy. Well, which we don't have all of yet, but you know even so, but that was basically what I would say one of the biggest critiques is that you don't have the same story arc. You don't have these relatable characters going through what you essentially want to see. And that was at least part of the downfall of the prequels. Well, prequels also were hindered by horrendous acting and script, but I, the po- what you're pointing out is very relevant of where one of the things that Star Wars has succeeded so remarkably at is that it proves that not all tropes are bad. The reason the hero's journey has become so iconic is that it is passed into myth. I mean, Star Wars was drawing heavily from Joseph Campbell in terms of the idea that there are fundamental stories, there are fundamental arcs that have become so ingrained in every culture, into the very bones of humanity, that they are so that they are timeless. That the idea of, of creating modern myth was genius because it was tapping into this just fundamental chord of mankind. Um, it is what Star Wars is so much associated with, is that it's taken these classic tropes and made them modern mythology for a whole new generation to seize upon. Uh, Lucas was said, a student of Joseph Campbell, as I, I believe, and, and you know was a fervent believer in the hero's journey, and that's why mm-hmm. it follows it so closely. Yeah, and it follows it successfully, incredibly well, and it is timeless and iconic as a result of it. Um, 
And it set that baseline for what everybody to expect out of Star Wars. It is comfortable. It is natural. It is the very foundations of literature and culture in certain ways, because all literature ties back to, you know, the old Gilgamesh style of epics of hero's journey. And so it can be hard for an established medium to get out of that kind of groove that works so well, and you'll get a lot of resistance over it. And as you've said, with the prequels, though they had legions of other problems going on with them, and very notably with the two most recent films of the um, the new Star Wars trilogy that's coming out as well, people have been resistant to, be, to them moving away from those tropes, just because it has been what Star Wars has been to people. Um, it's part of the reason some people are resisting the most recent Star Trek movies, because they associate Star Trek with being, you know, those kind of very philosophical scientific analysis of modern problems through a futuristic lens that Star Wars became famous for. It wasn't ever meant to be an action series. It was never meant to be, you know, just the wham-bam shoot 'em up that the more recent films have been associated with. And so while all those new Star Wars films and all the Star Trek films have been very financially successful, each have turned off a lot of their legions of older fans or established fans just because they're doing different things from the themes and tropes that have become the norm for the established medium. And that's my opinion on it. And I think that's why Sanderson has become such a tour de force of an author is that he not only acknowledged those themes and acknowledges those tropes, but he uses them and he acknowledges that he uses them and then puts a unique spin, a good twist, and... For the most part, I think really incredible world building, much more so than characters, though he does have some good characters throughout his stories. But I think his his real forte is world building and incorporates those tropes into his world building and then a good plot twist. Usually it it shows his confidence, his, his competence, his confidence and his awareness as an author that he's able to do that, because I I'm perfectly, I perfectly am able to respect and count on authors that are um, confident enough in what they're planning on writing, whatever else, to explore new things, to mess around with established tropes and do so successfully. But it can be a dangerous ground to walk, because tropes are what everybody expects, tropes are what everybody are comfortable with. Fiddling around with people's expectations like that can either work out beautifully, if you've clearly planned out how you're going to do it, or come across disastrously, through various other means, if uh, it is uh, a more flying by the seat of your pants enterprise. Sanderson definitely fall, seems to fall in the first category. Yeah, uh, he very definitely is is a heavy planner. I mean, I, you know, I've made vague reference to the Cosmere, but apparently, you know, a couple of different series and many, many different books all fit within the same universe, and he has this seemingly all planned out in meticulous detail. Um, and I think, you know, in... This story, he very much has a very clear background that he's writing this story and that, you know, we get hints of, but feels very consistent. And it feels like we are seeing a, you're going to love this, Spencer, a snapshot of a very detailed world that he's built. It's a testament that he's able to do this so successfully with two different short stories or novellas we've seen him with, where a lot of times a short story works because you're just solely seeing through the perspective of your character, and almost nothing is explained. Whereas Sanderson has the confidence in his medium that he is describing a complete world around them. 
we're not seeing all the parameters about it. We hear nothing about the politics of this particular universe because its characters don't care about it. But it's never, you're never thinking that this is just like a single episode of a television show of where there's nothing really beyond the screen. You really do feel like it's a limited perspective, but it's a limited perspective. If I look or look left or look right, there's still going to be a full world over there. It's a remarkable amount of achievement for such a short period of a story that he's able to pull this off. Yeah, and and I guess that's why I like him as an author, and, and you know, we can go into flaws and, and things like that, you know, maybe sometime, and, and I think that there there are definitely, you know, some flaws in his writing and some flaws in his stories, and, and I think that in some ways they're relatively similar throughout his work, and, you know, maybe we'll have that as some later episodes where we, you know, talk about the pluses and minuses of, of given authors that we've read a bit about. But um, I think that the world that he has created here and and the twist is is thoroughly entertaining. And, and I read this for a second time prior to to doing this podcast. And, you know, I sort of remembered the story, but I didn't remember exactly how it played out. And, you know, I still appreciated the twist a second time. And it's honestly mm-hmm. so short that. I wouldn't say it's quite a throwaway, but it kind of is. I mean, you sort of mentioned that you read it in like, you know, 30 minutes before we started. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It's remarkable that he's able to actually work foreshadowing into what is, I think, ultimately like a 60-page novella. But there is plain foreshadowing of several elements of the ultimate resolution of this plot that start from page two. That's an impressive amount of story building to get able to condense that effectively and not feel like it's in any way rushed or hammed in. Yeah. Um there's a few. F- mm, sure. I was gonna say I'll, I'll have to uh, touch base with my girlfriend to see if the uh, repeated mentioning of the time in this uh, short story, <laughs> you know, drove her anywhere near as crazy as the last one. Yeah, I, I, please do. I'd be curious about that. <laughs> uh, one philosophical point to discuss, and we wrapped up the main plot. But where do you stand on the ethics of interacting with this particular universe? I mean. Clearly, our two main characters represent different ends of the pie. They're prob- they don't, I don't think they end up as far apart as where, as where they started, necessarily. But um, do you view the idea of this universe, since that it is fake, you essentially have the moral imperative and superiority to do as you wish without any fear of any ethical consequences? Or do you adhere to a more Davis mentality that this is a created world? It's not fake, only in the sense that we can pull the plug, but that is more us terminating the world rather than us just ending the simulation um i guess i feel like for you know interesting radio i should go along with the you can do whatever you want and this thing isn't real and neither of us have that viewpoint we know it (laughs) so so we can have this argument but i like I, i completely disagree with that and i guess it sort of comes down to i guess a belief I don't know whether, you know, it's weirdly religion, you know, sort of not, but like, can, can humans create something that we value? And to say that we can't seems very weird. And I guess a a religious and and, and a conceptual space that, that I disagree with and doesn't make sense to me, you know, at some point, you know, could we create a consciousness you know, AI or, or, you know, something along those lines. And, you know, if you believe that that could happen at some point in the future, to not believe that turning it off is killing it in some ways 
just seems wrong to me. And, you know, the concept of, of a soul or whatever, you know, we can discuss that maybe at some other point, but very much a, if you accept anything outside of yourself is real, you have to draw the line somewhere. And I feel like drawing the line at, you know, what is very obviously consciousness is the most reasonable thing to me, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And these people are obviously conscious in every manner that anybody could want and even the characters want. And I, I guess I would say that nobody in the story really believes it's fake, you know, really yeah. believes that, you know, they aren't existing because then why, you know, why would Chaz sleep with, you know, Davis's wife? If you really didn't believe that it was anything like real, then sleep with anybody. Like, it, you know, it yeah. just doesn't matter. Like, why would you choose somebody that you had presumably some sort of emotional connection with rather than, you know, somebody she's can't be like the hottest person that you've ever seen. You know, you have yeah. basically your your choice of whatever you want to do. So Chaz doesn't even believe it. And to yeah. try and pretend that that I would just go about doing stupid, you know, things that are against the law or things that, that I would find immoral is just f- fallacious. And, and you know me, we used to play, um, I think we have essentially played every single Halo game co-op now uh, to some degree. How often would I make you replay levels so I could keep each of the Marines alive that we were traveling with? Yeah, and, and I was going to bring that up earlier, where it's just like, you know, I know exactly where you lie on this, because I just remember there were so many uh, times that, you, you know, you lost a Marine, and it's like, no, 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 we you know, we have to start over, like, we can't do that. And now I feel like I should tease you that every time you start over, you killed all those Marines so many times. Oh, please don't give me that thought. I don't need that thought, but... <laughs> The number of times we were going through that damn jackal alley on Legendary of where I'd like, okay, we lost a Marine. We have to go back and like, no, Spencer, we're not going back. We've died 45 times. We're going through this. (laughs) But it very much embodies my mindset to it, too. This is a subject that's been it's been pondered about by writers going back hundreds of years. Mary Shelley famously did it 150 years ago with Frankenstein about when we have truly reached the point that we can create life. There is a responsibility to it. There's an obligation with respect to it that one of the moments I first had with this story that real that put it in my mind that this was going to be very different than I initially expected, even from what you originally ascribed to me, is that these inhabitants of the snapshot are have such a perspective on themselves that that perspective can change when they find out that they aren't real. Their perspective can be harmed. It can be altered in their own minds. And that the effect of this reality badge on it shook me because it fully convinced me that, okay, this isn't fake. These are living things that can suffer emotional harm and pain and alteration in how they view themselves in the universe as a result of events that they've confronted. That is life. That is not some. that is, I mean, the universe itself, if you go back from a biblical perspective, was created with life and energy. It was created in light, with light and energy. These objects are no different. They are literally matter that is put about by energy being brought together. And it can persist to a degree that it is attached to them after they leave. If they eat hot dog, it stays with them. If they swallow a quarter, maybe it will stay inside them. 
it is energy that can only survive in this particular medium at this particular time as long as they have a switch going. But if you turn off the sun, we'll all die pretty quick, too. Yeah. It, uh, it, I, yeah I'm very much in the mindset that if we are truly capable of creating this world and we are using it in such a manner and we are so casual about turning it on or off, we have abandoned any possibility of moral and ethical thought. It, this is a room that is deep. This, if this was a thing that could exist, forget privacy. That's one concern. There is a moral obligation that you've now brought about in terms of your ability to create life on whim. Yeah. Um, and actually, very, you, you bring to mind uh, a question that, that my dad asked a rabbi at some point, which was, you know, if we become advanced enough that we can create an AI, you know, mm-hmm. would it have a soul? And basically his response was, you know, if we create something that's advanced enough, yeah, God would have to give it a soul. And, you know, my dad's response was, well, you know, isn't that giving man a lot of power and forcing God to essentially give a soul to to something? And the rabbi's response was surprisingly quick and was, well, what do you think having a child is? Hmm, that is a very quick response to that question. I like that. Uh, and if you adopt a Calvinist mindset to it, too, there is no independent thought anyway that God is still directing your actions when he's having you create life. Uh, so there's many ways to get around the particular soul issue associated with this, be it with uh, essentially our, when our purposes on Earth is to create life and add, to, and add souls to the equation, or a predestination mindset that... We're here to fulfill God's will in any way that he sees fit. You're just filling it out in a more creative manner than most. Um, yeah, I mean, it's one of the things with souls is where once you start getting into questions of ultimate, re- of, of, of profound religious questions like that that we can never know the answer to, I don't think that it can reasonably fit into our moral decision-making for it. Because it's not something that we can ever really accurately assess. And from a truly religious standpoint, if we're presuming that we know the answer to that equation, we're committing an act of heresy. Um, yeah, I, I guess it, it was just something that reminded me. I'm not saying that like no, no, we have a, to that's, view that's, uh, snapshots no, bestowing souls. No, that's that's a great little story. I like that. That is a an interesting addition and perspective on this. Um, how do we feel about the butterfly effect character growth over the course of the story? Because the story makes no bones about the fact that, as we talked about, the two key things that are driving. His decision-making at the end of the story is his improved relationship with Chaz, which itself is different than it would have played out in the real world, because Mm -hmm. Chaz was the one that convinced him to get the girl's number. And so there are several aspects of their relationship which are presumably very differently and very substantially altered from how they played out, quote-unquote, in the real events in terms of their own growth as 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 partners. And then, of course, running into the girl and her representing essentially his hope at something beyond something new, his hope at a future, his hope at his own ability to grow as a person that he otherwise didn't have when he was in the real world. Um, what do we, we you talked about how Brendan Sanderson has an interesting view on what relationships are and what they're capable of and how they can alter a person. How do you feel um, about his own interpretation of what events can bring on an individual's character growth with respect to uh, both moving beyond a relationship and otherwise? Um, I think it's interesting. I guess I think it's necessary for this uh, story. 
it's necessary, a bit tropey. It's a, it, it's a, it's a little, I don't want, it, I think it's well done, but I think if there's any element of the story that feels a little bit forced, it's this. It's like you needed there to be a butterfly effect in the story and involved in this way, and I felt like this one was a little bit on the nose. Okay, so when you say it's forced, are you saying it felt forced while you were reading it, or it felt feels forced now that you're looking back on it? Um, even while I was reading it, I kept on thinking with how much it was coming up that it was going to be relevant later, that there were lots of little warning flags attached to it that remember this for later, it matters, it matters, it matters. Okay. I didn't necessarily see it playing out in that particular way, but I felt like he was intentionally making sure it was at the front of our minds as, as it was going forward. It was obvious foreshadowing, I felt. Okay, so I, I guess this sort of plays into how I read the story and how you've read the story. Um, I've mostly read the story over a couple of nights, so it's not as in my mind about like the exact sequence of things and how many times things are brought up because it's not as condensed within time. Mm-hmm. And so things have faded enough that it didn't feel as forced to me. And now mm-hmm. looking back, like I can see how forced it would have been. Um, and it may be um, because... Maybe when I initially read it, it might have been a little bit faster and felt a little bit more forced. I'm not 100% sure. And that also mm-hmm. might have been why I felt some of the things in Monster Calls was a little bit more forced because I read it in much larger chunks. I think I read it over like sure. two nights instead of, I think I reread this in like three. And it's so short that spacing that out, like I didn't, it didn't feel quite as forced to me. Um, yeah. But and yes, just- I completely agree. It's very tropey. And it just as with Monster Calls, I fully respect that that was forced too. But there, as here, I don't ultimately care. It works for the story. It's the story he wants to tell. It's the themes he wants to present. Tropes aren't bad. They're a necessary building block of a story. I think I think this one that's a little bit easier to see the motor that's being put when he brings them together. But it still it still puts together to build a very nice. Uh, uh, shall I complete this metaphor? A very nice building in the end. Yeah. Um... And I guess, so then there's that other question, which is, did you expect, which twists did you expect, if any, and et cetera. So I guess for me, when I read it, I didn't, like I vaguely thought about them not being real, but I sort of dismissed that because it was like, oh, okay, that that, that wouldn't be an interesting twist on this story. And what I, yeah. I mean, as he talks about in the postscript, I very much frequently thought, okay, they're probably not real, because that's a very common theme, that's a very common trope. What I thought was going to play out was that they were going to be um, essentially characters purposely built into this universe to investigate crimes, but weren't real themselves. Hmm. Um, I thought that they were going to be very much creations of the medium for the purpose of investigating crimes, but weren't weren't real people. Um, That kind of did prove to be true, but in no way the way I thought it was going to be. Gotcha. What the twist I didn't expect was it was uh, the various tensions with his partner. I actually didn't expect another twist to play out in that matter. Hmm. Um, so I guess what I would say is what I anticipated, which was very much not the twist, but mm-hmm. what I thought was going to happen was I thought Chaz was going to be the photographer. Hmm. I, I didn't get a feeling for that. Uh, what kind of moments put you on to that uh, particular idea? Uh, 
basically that, you know, he was convinced it was a snapshot. He seemed to know the ins and outs of the snapshot fairly well, you know, that he had to, you know, disrupt the time of death of the body. And so that they were uh, sunk in water and then put out to sea. And so they wouldn't know when it was. And also the descriptions of how casual Chaz was with violence. And it kind of, I don't know where it went with this, but that, you know, he was very willing to kill Maria and had, you know, at least assaulted her in the past. And it wasn't quite clear exactly what the assault entailed, but Mm -hmm. the, that he was very okay with killing people within a snapshot. And so if he thought that he was, you know, cleaning up a snapshot, then, you know, that might improve certain things. And, you know, it obviously doesn't play out sort of once you know the twist and once you know, you know, what's happened and things like that. But now, that's it, what I was expecting. That's an interesting idea. In the, in that kind of uh, spinoff of the story, would Davis have known the photographer was the, know that Chaz was the photographer and was investigating the crime essentially alongside him to get him to admit or reveal details about it? Or would that have been a surprise to Davis later? Um, I th- so to me, what I was expecting is that was going to be a surprise to Davis, but that's also why Maria wouldn't tell him ah, information about the photographer because you know they either knew or had suspicions that Chaz was the photographer, and so it would essentially tip their hand. Mm-hmm. You know what? Here's an interesting little thing. Um, I'm just pondering this now. The reason that they were cut off from the information in this particular simulation was in some ways because it was a simulation. Why were they cut off from it? Were they cut off from the information originally in the real world in terms of investigating the photographer? Uh, Yeah, I would guess so because that's what happened in the simulation. It would be too much of a deviation if they didn't, I guess. Right. And also... I'm sort of curious as to like how it played out because I guess now I expect that the that they didn't get a reply from Maria in the simulation means that something happened at that point in the other simulation that they mm-hmm. didn't have what her response was or whatever. Yeah, it, it's something we've kind of pondered before about how broadly the simulation would need to work, uh, the snapshot would need to work because. You can't just create a single little part of the universe and expect that to operate in any way consistently or any way with without some degree of outside influence. It, as they even as Davis at one point even ponders that he doesn't really get how planes come in, how people come in and out, because it's only a limited little part of the universe, but it's able to continue to operate normally as if it was still connected to a larger world that it isn't. Um, which is a fascinating thing to try to ponder out logically, that essentially the author acknowledges that that would take a lot more space than this book has time for, and the character wouldn't understand it anyway. So hand wave, ponder, ponder it on your own time. Yeah, um, and I, I have this feeling that Sanderson saw one of the videos of, um, I can't remember his name, but it's, there's an autistic man who's like is able to go up in a helicopter and basically like draw an entire skyline from like 15 minutes up in a helicopter, mm-hmm. and sort of 
maybe not taking it to a logical conclusion, but taking it to, okay, what's five steps in the future? And what's, you know, five steps down that road of essentially somebody being able to recreate something that they're familiar with mm-hmm. down to the last detail. It, it's an interesting little thing to ponder. I always liked, um, there's an example I always remember from um, Lord of the Rings and Tolkien, which we've talked about previously, you, you, you actually you actually don't like that much. But uh, Tolkien being a linguist, he, his original goal was to make an Elvish language, or two Elvish languages as it turned out. And he quickly realized that he had to create uh, an Elvish culture and an Elvish history associated with that for it to actually be a proper living, breathing language, because the various words that we have come from various historical cultural moments in our past, how they've been incorporated in or developed from certain events. And then he realized that he couldn't have an Elvish culture in isolation. They had to have a world that they were operating in. And so he essentially had to create the world of Middle-earth and of Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit and the um, Cimmerillion because he wanted to make a living and breathing language. And so it needed all the other aspects of the universe to actually make it real. And so it's all one of the questions I have to ask for a simulation like this is that for it to be real and for it to continue, there essentially needs to be a world outside it, even if the simulation itself isn't creating it. And so it's just a, it's a fascinating thing to think about of where for the phone calls to be coming in long distance, for goods to be moving in, for anything outside the boundaries of the civilization, the simulation, to, uh, the snapshot to work, it exists, but just not here. And so I'm just fascinated to ponder out how that logically works. So it's something that Sanderson wisely ducks in terms of trying to explain. Yeah. Um, that actually reminds me of two things, one related to the story and one completely separate And talk- when you're talking about Elvish. Um, one of my... One of the only couple of uh, English professors that, or English teachers that I actually liked, um, I have for uh, freshman English at Rutgers, and she was quite a bit younger. She probably wasn't actually like a doctorate, but um, had a doctorate, I'm guessing, because she seemed like she was early 20s, but possibly, you know, I, I don't remember her well enough or, or um, but... Sure, sure, sure. I do, what I do remember is, you know, we chat every so often after the classes, um, and uh, one of the things that she told me about was when she was in, I don't think it was grade school, it might, it must have been like middle school, high school, something like that, is she learned the Elvish script, and she and one of her good friends would write notes and pass notes in Elvish. Really? And so she still remembered like pretty much all of the script and like she did something with it or with a chunk of it in uh, one of the classes. And it was, you know, it might've been like describe, you know, think about what it would be like to be an outsider and describe it, you know, sort of with, if you were foreign to this world and like scribbled some, some Elvish or something like that. And it was, it was super funny. I was like, huh, I'm pretty sure I know exactly where that comes from. And she's like, yep. I still remember most of the alphabet from when I was, in high school, so that was it, super funny. I was more ambitious than I was in high school. <laughs> um, and then the other question that um, relates more to this story in particular is what happens, what do you think happens when they get to the edge of a snapshot? Well, it seems that real people can just walk at real. 
uh, people that aren't created in the snapshot and for the snapshot can just walk through and out without issues. Similarly, to how if the world turns out, they just simply remain, though they've never tested that to be sure. Um, in terms of the people of the snapshot, I guess it'd be like walking out of the holodeck. Yeah, I, I mean, just... I assume they, those disappear, but with the quote-unquote real people that exit the snapshot, can they sort of, is it like a square that they can walk in somewhere else? I mean, it's lo- obviously large enough that they can drive in it, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's weird to think about because they don't, it doesn't seem to have clear borders because like when those two agents that are, you know, grilling him at the end uh, leave him, they just instantaneously disappear and walk out of it. It's almost as if they have a, a means to separate themselves from that created reality when they wish to. And, it, you know, if they have that, then, you know, why doesn't, if somebody sort of has that mash, like, you know, the oh shit button, it seems like you pre- could prevent maybe not all of, but a lot of the things from happening, you know, accidents from happening. So it's sort of like a, again, you know, we're getting into the, if you start to, to get in deep and start to like find holes that you can poke at, like you can obviously poke at something, but yeah. the other side of it is I am, Almost 100% sure that Brandon Sanderson has thought about this and has a good answer. Um, <laughs> and, and, and to be fair, for the two agents at the end, I think in some ways it's described that their level of knowledge and understanding of the, uh, the snapshot is superior to Davis. Uh, Davis. They even admit to Davis that his purpose in there is little more than cover, that their actual intent of this operation is far different and far broader than what they're revealing to the public. Other agents. So, These two are, are newbies. There's two newbies, but they're part of seemingly this larger program of where, I mean, the level of uh, spying and data mining that they would have the potential for for this would be invaluable. And that the only way the city-state could reasonably afford to buy this from whatever government exists is if they were able to get some value out of it far in excess of... Random um, crimes. Random crimes. So this clearly reveals there's a broader conspiracy at play that seemingly the detectives and the broader public are just simply aren't aware of. And so maybe they have a unique means of leaving that he doesn't, but that leaves open the question of how he gets in and out. Yep. Well, we've gone on for about two and a half hours. Any other broader <laughs> themes you'd like to discuss with this one? Uh, I think we can leave off the characters. Um, and, you know, we've delved into... Covered them in pretty good, de- in yeah, pretty good detail. That's true. And the world building. So, no, I think we've uh, gone in and out and spent, you know five times more the amount of time talking about it than it took you to read it. So I think we did pretty well. <laughs> That's the fun of these podcasts. There's so many other details <laughs> you never pondered the first time around when you got somebody else to chat with. Um, well, uh, audience, it has always been a pleasure to speak with you here today. Uh, for next week, I think we will, or are we going to do uh, the, sec- the second book of Legion? See if we can bring in a few other people for that one. Or we do we want to move straight on to uh, We Are Legion, We Are Bob? Um, we've got a lot of legions on this show. I'm starting to notice. Yeah. And, and I also thought it was funny when at some point you, you mentioned Legion earlier in the podcast and I almost brought up, is it because so many legions are on your mind? Um, <laughs> I suppose it's only appropriate that we have so many legions we're dealing with cause they are many. Uh, yes. Uh, so I, I think going forward with Bob maybe, but I'm also happy to do the uh, second story of Legion. Um, but who knows if we'll ever get anybody else on. Um, maybe with another short story, we could uh, harangue and rope some of our uh, compatriots into it. So 
Um, but maybe okay. I, that might be like better planned in the future. So I think for at least our audience's sake, we'll, we'll say that we're going to do the Bobaverse next, and that'll give us a couple of episodes to uh, maybe convince some other of our friends to, to join in for a short story since they are uh, morally and ethically opposed to, to reading any books, apparently. <laughs> oh, well, maybe someday. Well, BJ... Where can they listen to our wonderful, increasingly large, and wide array of material? Uh, you can find all of our content on mangumtalks.com, where we release every episode. You can find this, uh, Got Questions, which is uh, from Spencer and our friend Lee, uh, some basketball podcast that I have yet to listen to, but I'm excited <laughs> to hear about, and an offering they've recorded from... two of those at this point we've neither of us have listened to. <laughs> And, and I mean to, and I will, but, you know, it's not quite as high on my list. Um, mm-hmm. And then we have a fourth podcast that's sort of from the group of us called Whiskey on the Weekends, which hopefully will have a uh, third episode coming out in the not-too-distant future. Um, but again, as I said, you can find that all on mangumtalks.com. We post all of our content on our subreddit, um, our Mangum Talks, and you can find our podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere that you get podcasts and uh, just search for the name of the podcast. All right. Well, folks, you'll hear from us in a week or two with the first book of the Bobaverse. We are Legion. We are Bob. Looking forward to talking about it with you. Until then, enjoy reading and uh, we'll see you next time. Uh, And that's by Dennis E. Taylor. Uh, Keep reading all the good stuff you're reading and hopefully some of the stuff that we recommend. (laughs) Till next time, folks. Have a good night, guys.